0: This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend Sean Lake. Co founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So, I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter. That has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty, listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by First in Wellness, and when it comes to delivering mental and physical health information to the first responder professions, I feel it's extremely important that we get people who are well-versed and experienced in those fields rather than one of us that has been to like a weekend workshop. So the two people behind First in Wellness are Danielle Cook-Kawash, who has been on my podcast, and Mike Salemi. Danielle has a history in nutrition. Mike is a well-known kettlebell strength and conditioning coach. And they have assembled a team of some of the greatest minds in the wellness field. Now, one of the areas I feel that we struggle is simply having a program. Either it's focused too much purely on fitness or, as I mentioned before, it's delivered by well-meaning but inexperienced peers. So First In Wellness offers both group and individual programs that are affordable, easy to use, and they even have a 100% money-back guarantee in the first 60 days. They are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount today on their two online individual programs. Firstly, you can get 15% off First In Fitness. The promo code for that is AFSOFIT15. You can also get 50% off First In Resilience. And the promo code for that is AFSORES50. And you can learn all about First In Wellness and use those promo codes on firstinwellness.com. And if you want to hear more about Mike, Danielle, and their team and what they offer at First In Wellness, you can listen to episode 563 of Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. Now, Doug was originally in the tech industry, but he found himself making documentaries. His very first one, ironically, in 2009 was about a flu pandemic. He then worked in the world of fasting and created a film about that. The incredible movie that first hooked me, The Motivation Factor, discussing the impact of a high level of physical education in schools in the 50s and 60s, and the direct correlation it had on their physical and mental health and productivity and their academic scores. One of his other films is called The Power of Zero, which discusses the financial crisis this country is facing. And once again, so much of our debt is related to our healthcare costs. So you can imagine the importance of Doug's lens. And this is why yesterday I posted about this on social media. I wanted everyone to listen to this episode. When we prioritize our physical health, movement, what we eat... It factors into every other element of our life. It reduces our national debt through reducing healthcare costs. It improves mental health, affecting the addiction crisis. It fosters community when we suffer together, therefore repairing a lot of these divides that have been created the last few years. And productivity, whether performing high academically in school or whether in the workplace, by creating these healthy human beings, every single element of our life is improved. And there is no better time to sow these seeds than now after two years of the pandemic when the absolute priority of discussion should be improving the physical and mental health of every country on the planet so before we get to this incredible conversation as i say every week please just take a moment go to whichever app you listen to this on subscribe to the show leave feedback and leave a rating Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 576 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Doug Orchard. Enjoy. Well, Doug, I want to just start by saying thank you so much for welcoming me to your beautiful home today
1: um, and taking the time to come on the podcast. Hey, thanks so much. It is so great to talk to you. Uh, I think we're kindred spirits in a lot of things, so thank you.
0: It's going to be a great conversation. I was listening to an interview you did with three military members before when you were making the film, and even that conversation here in the pertinent elements, not only from the preparation of the tactical community, but also the health of our nation. So I'm uber excited. But we're sitting in a quite a unique space right now. So for people that can't see, where are we geographically?
1: So we're in Ormond Beach, Florida. I had custom built out this studio. This is where I actually do my creation. So we got, you know, cedar wall right there. This is like a special vinyl flooring for acoustics. I could fly people out and actually film them here. Um, ironically, the first audio recording anyone's doing is you and me right here. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm honored. Thank you. <laughs> so great. Um, but, um, I have this backyard. I'm doing all this work on, I used to, when it comes to editing my movies, I used to go off to a forest or someone's cabin or somewhere I needed to be really in nature because what I wanted to, when you're editing mentally, it gets so, there's so much to it, um, for documentary editing, the only way I know how to do that really is you get to the point that all the footage is just swimming in your brain. So you've gone through it over and over and over. It's there. And you don't want to be with another human until it's on the timeline. And that's a five-day process typically. And at the very end, and we're talking about months of work before you can get to that spot. And so you have to have a break. Like it's just emotionally taxing. It's mentally, it just sucks life out of you. And so I found that if I could just be in nature... It was really helpful. So I decided I moved to Florida. I've got my whole backyard. Again, fully re landscape is going to be full on you know, jungle. It looks like Costa Rica. And that way I could just go outside, do some Indian clubs, look at the nature for five or 10 minutes and come right back in and keep editing. That's that's what I did here. That's what my goal. Beautiful. Well, I can relate to that. I, I gave you the book. I
0: wrote a book just over a year ago now. And it was a porch where I did a lot of the writing. But yeah, I mean, trying to get that thought from your brain. If the moment of, you know, cell phone pings or a child comes in and asks a question, you just focus is lost. So I, I totally understand why you need a separate space.
1: Yeah. So thank you. Welcome.
0: So you talked about moving to Florida. I'd love to start at the very beginning of your timeline first, and then obviously we'll get to all your work. So where were you born? And tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, you know, what your parents did and how many siblings.
1: Yeah, so I was born in Sacramento, California, and um, I spent most of my life there. Um, I was only, man, I, I grew up within a 40-minute drive of La Sierra High, where I did that whole motivation factor thing, and, and at the time, I was only 20 minutes away from it when I did that film. So Sacramento, and my, I have, I'm one of six siblings, same parents, still, they're still married to this day, they're like 84 years old, uh, healthy. Um, dad was a big track guy, uh, McClatchy high school there in Sacramento. And, um, he was a electrician by trade. And when I was eight years old, he got in a pretty significant accident. Lucky he lived, but spent two months in the ICU. And then it was a six month uh, recovery. He fell off a scaffold. The scaffold broke on him. And he landed head first, then arms. The arms were so shattered they didn't think he was ever going to be able to work again. But his head caught <laughs> most of the the falls. You can imagine what what the situation was with him. And that was the same time my brother, who was a a pole vaulter, great athlete, he was he was sixteen. He got diagnosed with having a cancer and was told he's going to have six months to live. And my other brother just went off to college. So suddenly I'm an eight year old kid all by myself, and I'm off in my In our garden, we had a a garden, we had a lot that was right, same size as our lot. And next door to it, it was just a big garden. My parents were big into gardening, health food. So I'm out there at eight years old. Mom's gone. She's at the hospital all the time. You know, I got a couple of sisters and uh, three others. Two were younger than me. And that's it. And I was out in the garden trying to grow crops, thinking, this is how we're going to eat. You know, dad's nowhere, brother's going to die, and he's often hospital too. And, and it was a really interesting moment, you know, for me to kind of have to grow up pretty quickly. Um, I was the only kid on my block. It wasn't a bad neighborhood, but I happened to be the only kid on my block who didn't go to prison. It just one of those, you know, sometimes it's just people get doing crazy things. And so I had these experiences. Um, and one day we had From our church, they came and just delivered a whole bunch of groceries. It was it was just bags from where we go buy groceries. And this gal sits down and explains to me, hey, um, your parents for their whole life been involved in our church. And every sun once a month we we do a fast where we don't eat. We don't eat food or and the monies we would be spending on the food as a minimum, even poor people do this or more. If you feel like donating more, we give. And 100% of those funds, 100% are used for people like you right now. You know, you're know, you down your luck, you need bills paid, mortgage paid, you need food or whatever. She said, hey, you'll never, just know, you'll, you'll never not have food. It's a really cool thing. So when I made the movie Fasting, I, I gave that church three full minutes of explaining what they do and why they did that. And I thought it was a really beautiful thing how we could end world hunger by going one day a month without food. You know, and if you and it's healthy for you. I said to learn. You know, fasting was all about what we could learn by not eating every now and again. Um, but I saw I was a recipient at eight years old. I mean, it's how we ate for months. My dad was out of work for a year, and um, it was pretty cool. And I also saw the value of doing your own gardening and 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 all that. And then and then while my brother was suffering like that, that's when my parents got into. You know, it was a death sentence. And that particular diagnosis I can't don't ask me to say the name it's a complex thing I, I've never really learned how to say it but it hasn't changed a kid who gets diagnosed with that in their growing years they got six months still I mean nothing there's been no improvement so my parents tried to we went down they went down to San Diego went to one of those clinics where they are doing wheatgrass and everything else natural everything and so I at that time for a while moving forward I had wheatgrass every morning. I had juicing every morning. They were big Jacqueline fans. Jacqueline had a business partner. His name was Ed Flint. He had a gym. Um, my, my, my brother eventually gets married, my one who lives, and he marries this gal who was affiliated with this guy. And, and that guy got me out to the gym when I was 13, you know, freshman year. And um, so it's Jack Elaine's business partner. If you know Jack Elaine, you know his business partner. I mean, they're, they're like peas in the pod. And this guy was in the 70s. He was the freakest strong of anybody I've ever met. I've yet to met, meet anyone at that age who's still like that. Um, and he was, you know, he just instilled in me a desire to be a guy that's in shape and taught me how to transform my physique I don't remember my weight, my, but I remember going into summer from 8th grade or 8th or grade going to ninth grade. And I said, you know, I really want to just improve what I need to do. And, and I'm just like, should I be using these curls? Should I be doing this? And, you know, you look at the outside stuff. Oh, no. No. Son, if you want to mass up, you need to do heavy weights. You need to be doing squats, deadlifts, bench. And it says something else. can't remember what else this thing you said. I, but there's like four things I need to do. And then you need to eat a loaf of your mom's whole wheat bread that she makes every day, a full loaf, and drink a gallon of whole milk every day. <laughs> By the way, if you do that for a summer, that definitely works. I was transformed. We didn't have supplements, other stuff then. So anyway, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I did that. Went through high school. But I was not an athlete. I had to work, and I and I felt because of what I went through in eighth grade, I felt like it was super. I had to be super responsible individual, and you know the sports I wasn't going to be able to maintain. I, I wasn't even able to save for my own college and everything else. I, no one had gone to college. In my family. I was the first one to go, and um, and graduate, and they got a master's degree and everything. So I wasn't able to do a lot that I wanted to do that way. But I absolutely stayed in shape and it was something I always did my whole life. Um, so anyway, that's, yeah. So I got a, um, I ended up getting an undergrad in English and a master's degree in library science. It was, it, it was competitive intelligence was my focus at the time. And I became the number one tech recruiter in the country using what I knew in 1995. Um, and then I got into doing streaming media stuff. I, I created a streaming media company in 99, 2000 that introduced me to the world of video and stuff. And um, and then I had a, a couple of different firms that was in that space. I was doing corporate, both recruiting stuff and video stuff and then corporate marketing throughout the early 2000s until 2009 when someone wanted a, a marketing video on face masks. And uh, they had to stop you there. Sorry, the
0: interview's over. All right.
1: (laughs) I'm joking. No, they want to do a face on face mask. and, And what had happened is they had gone through the process of getting FDA approval on a certain kind of mask that you could put on that would provide protection from microscopic particulate matter for a virus, something that's so small that's basically dust on the mitochondria. And um, they were saying that the like a surgical mask would never work, and if you if the N95s that they sell, those would not work for a general public because you have got to go through a fit testing thing, and that's the process. And you're a firefighter; you've done that. You know what I'm talking about. Many years. And so they had 3M and Pasture Pharma had come out with a with these. They had gone through 185 different facial designs of adults. I mean, this was a very complex process and came up with something that actually any adult could put on if they didn't have facial hair, and they would have full seal, total protection from a virus. And so everyone listening right now, if they if this ends up being in the film, is probably sitting there going, well, wait a second, how come I haven't heard of this FDA-approved general public use respirator that both 3M and Pastor Pharma has? And- And, um, and it's interesting because, you know, I did a, these guys wanted a marketing video and I said, no one's going to watch a marketing, no one's going to watch a video on that topic. You'd be better off to do a documentary, a legit documentary on pandemic flu. Talked them into giving me a budget, made my first documentary, 2009 truth about pandemic flu with Tommy Thompson, who basically was a partner in that whole thing anyway. And, um, and he was just been, he was the former health health secretary And a four-term governor and had been a presidential candidate. And, of course, he had his buddies. there at the CDC and the FDA. He knew everybody and all the immunologists, virologists, everybody. The the people who extracted Spanish flu out of cadavers, uh, all those people were in the film. I interviewed all those folks. And it was a great movie. And it was really clear what you're supposed to do to prepare and protect yourself in a pandemic. And then we had one. We've had this one. By the way, H1N1 breaks out right in the middle of filming that. Timing couldn't have been better. Um, And uh, I've watched what we've done as a country since then, you know, in this, and I was really puzzled. Um, What we've done and how we responded didn't match what they said we're supposed to do. And absent in all of this is this already FDA approved N95 GPU, general public use respirator, FDA approved for the adults. In the film it was it cited Time Magazine criticizing us because we didn't have we should stockpile 65 billion of these the experts thought and we hadn't stockpiled them yet for Hurricane Katrina. So this film comes out in 2009, H1N1 breaks out in 2009. It's typically your vice president is over that kind of stuff, right? And the vice president of the United States at the time is Joe Biden. Well, I've watched Joe Biden since come out and he's just wearing face masks and saying wear two of these i'm like what on earth a face mask designed so that your drilling dentist doesn't drill into your mouth while he's drilling on your teeth i mean it's 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 just to stop drool that's all the face mask is n95 respirator that's designed to actually protect you but you have to be fit tested for it the only thing that exists is the gpus and for some reason our country's never bought them and um, and what was super interesting is when Fauci came out in March, mid March, 2020, interviewed. Should we the public be wearing face masks? He said, "No, everyone knows that, seeing that." Two weeks later, CDC recommends that we start wearing those, start making them yourself, whatever. Put them on, uh, put scarves around, bandanas, anything works. They said. And um, and. And so I looked at the website when he said, don't wear them. And yeah, I just did a Google search for those in, the, those, those respirators and they were right there. Uh, two weeks later when Fauci, well, not Fauci, but the CDC changes their mind and says, okay, start wearing these face masks. Um, I, I just went to my history to where I was two weeks earlier, pulled up the same page on the FDA's website where it listed these products out and those in FDA-approved N95 respirators, GPUs, that section of the page was deleted. Everything was the same before and after, and they just got rid of that part. So they actually didn't have on their site anymore the one thing that is FDA-approved and scientifically, clinically proven to protect the public. Like literally, instead of closing down the country, if we had 165 billion of these sitting around, we could have just handed them out to the vulnerable, the population, and it has been business as usual. They're protected. The rest of us going on with our lives. We wouldn't have spent ten trillion dollars unnecessarily, and I don't know what we're doing right now. So it's been very difficult for me to watch this uh, play out because you know I, I, we had the answer already, and uh, and and so this was like a makeup, I guess, because we you know we didn't prepare as a country for that, which would have been you know a couple billion dollars to buy those you know, in an off-market situation. You couldn't get them now. Nobody could get their hands on them now. I'm not sure. But they must be selling them. Somebody's, somebody's getting them. Ironically, my mother-in-law watched that documentary I did in 2009. It comes out. She's got a whole bunch of these still in her closet to prepare for that day. She goes to the doctor's office or to the hospital for her nursing friends, because she's retired now, but her fellow friends were still being were nurses there, and gives them to them. Because they couldn't even get their hands on N95 respirators. And people were just, they were making homemade cloth things wearing those in the hospital, which does nothing. And I thought to myself, man, you, you have a real N95 respirator. <laughs> it was just crazy. The whole thing was a crazy experience. And, and, and I'm sharing this story right now because just to kind of get you, everyone to understand why I'm frustrated with our you know, FDA and, and those in those kinds of positions who are in the position that we're should that we're paying them in tax dollars. We we support this to provide us with the information we need for our health and the choices they've made to in many cases, and by the way, everyone's like, Well, where's that documentary you did? Why don't you just release it? Yeah. Someone show me the platform I can release that movie right now where where would that be would that be spotify (laughs) (laughs) without anymore (laughs) would that be amazon no it won't be amazon Uh, would it be youtube where where would i where would i put that thing uh where, where it wouldn't be ripped down within two days and where i'd still be able to go out and do work you know and not be labeled this you know whatever even though that's it's the fda in the film saying it and it's the cdc and it's you know you're sitting there going wow um, so so if they're prepared to actually go so far as to delete what we do know from their site the day they say put these out, and I kind of get maybe why they would do that. It would just be like, okay, well, we can't tell the public this is what you should get. There's no way the public can get it. Like they're just be gone. They're off the shelves. They're just gone. They are already would be gone. So why frustrate everybody? And then so you tell them the next best thing, just put on whatever. But the problem with that is, it's a lie. Like, it's a lie. If you tell an older, vulnerable person or immunocompromised individual, put on a surgical mask and then go ahead and sit right next to somebody on a plane, you're, you're good. You're lying to them. You're absolutely lying to them. And so, you would be better off not to be wearing anything and go by your distancing and everything else than what we did. So, that's a little bit about I can go on and on about that, but anyway, it's out there. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I mean, it's such an important perspective. And I want to get to, you know, the, the part which isn't discussed, which is underlying health, which is, you know, a big right. part of your next film. So, right. um, but just touching on that for a second, I've seen the polar, there, there was a wedge driven by the previous president as a wedge driven now. And it breaks my heart because I mean, I heard you talked about kind of mentioned this in one of the previous podcasts too that you were on. Um, I felt like we, This was a time where leaders were actually tested to find out if they were actually able to lead and the right and the left failed miserably. Oh yeah. You know, but so coming, seeing this division, seeing these people, these families, these friendships torn apart about vaccines or, you know, masks Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Most of us in the middle are like, yeah, this is a real threat. This is a real virus that's definitely going to attack the immunocompromised and there is an element where the right mask at the right time will make a dent but coming from the first responder profession as you mentioned we go through this laborious process every year of making sure our SCBA which is the the air tank mask um is fitted perfectly and we have to talk and move around and do all these things and then we do the exact same thing with the N95 and they spray this kind of bitter compound in there that if we smell, then it's not the right seal. And that's a one-time use mask as well. So then, coming from that background of, you know, somewhat expertise when it comes to having masks stuck to your face, I see, you know, crocheted masks and, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming people were using toilet paper as masks because those were all gone too. Right. But, you know, and you're like, if can you smell smoke from the person over there? That, those smoke particles are so much bigger than a virus. This isn't an argument. This is basic physics. You know, I mean, it's just, it was so maddening because you want people to be protected. But as you said, that was a complete fictional story that was given to them. And so now you've got people mask shaming who on their own face is something that's actually doing nothing whatsoever versus, as you said, pooling your resources, protecting the people that actually need them. And then the rest of us just, you know, Getting the flu and moving on, which, and our, and our kids, thank God, that was a great news. They were not getting negatively affected apart from, you know, the type one
1: diabetics and, you know, and that again, you protect those vulnerable oh, yeah, people It There's 125 too. kids who passed away as of like last, you know, three months ago to date. And that's a pretty small number given how many infections it is. So, so you're right. And, and less than the flu. So, so that's a fortunate thing. Um, and you have a bunch of focus on them. It's a show. What bothers me is the show. We are pretending that these institutions are there to protect us and give us all this information, but it's being used in a different way. And, and so what do you even do about that? And that's, that's, so I've thought a lot. Do I make a movie really on this? Do we really, and do I interview all those major people? Cause I can get them usually in my film and have them review. You know, we know why we st- created the FDA. Um, we know that it didn't do what we said we were hoping it would do and we know that it's not protecting us right now like on on so many things would it be better if it was a private thing or something else and you know um you know what would what would be better uh, those are those are real questions but when we really get into health you know we look at schools we look at our own corporations we look at things and i feel like so much of what we do is a show it's just to put on a show to kind of appease. It looks like we're doing something. We checked that box, and we moved on. And and you know if if you're if you're doing exercise and you've just checked a box, oh, I did my exercise. I checked a box. You know you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> it is like one of the most wonderful parts of our life, our day, when we get to exercise and when we get to take that break and completely renew our system, stress out our system right to that healthy edge, so that our body gives us back this amazing machine. And um, one that protects us against viruses, helps us withstand almost anything thrown at us, disease. We have so much in us always, everywhere. I still don't even understand how COVID actually transfers to people. Um, I know if you have sex with somebody who does, you get it. That happened to me, my wife, she had it. <laughs> I knew she had it. So they had it all I was on. like, I'm good. <laughs>
0: Condoms we should be wearing.
1: <laughs> But um but you know when you when you look at uh, um, a lot of this we there's a lot we don't know. You know why are some people getting cancer others not? Why is you know uh, there's a lot we could look at. But we could look at the big killers. 80% of our healthcare costs really go to those chronic illnesses that are preventable illnesses. So 80% of our healthcare costs are unnecessary. And the moment you accept that that we have Eighty percent of our, and that is, by the way, almost the entire national budget debt. Our entire national debt, you could almost eliminate historically looking back if we started early enough, nineteen ninety or whatever, by not having the unnecessary chronic illnesses in America that we spent through Medicare or whatnot. So, so just that alone, and then of course, you know, you're looking at possibly being able to wipe out eighty percent of your insurance bills and everything. So we're talking about. The biggest cost we have as a country and the whole industry, 80% of it's unnecessary. And it's, it's just there as band-aid solutions and which never heals us. Um, but on the side that actually would, would heal us and we could have this incredible health span to the day we die and have this amazing life. Some people are doing that. Some people are, are experiencing that. They have emotional health. They like to be around other people. They love to be around other people. They're interested in it. And why? Because they exercise and they eat right. Um, It's diet and exercise. The word and in between is required, unfortunately. You just like doing diet or you like just doing exercise. It's not enough. It's both. Got to do both. (laughs) Um, And and I have movies. I had a movie Fasting. I was demonstrating you can still eat bad and still have, and, and, and still lose weight if you fast. And people got really mad. Well, I was just demonstrating that. And then, then the motivation factor is looking at exercise. Um, well, people are like, well, so if we exercise hard, we, do, we don't have to worry as much about diet. Well, you know, you still need to worry about your diet and everything else. Like there's a lot. There's a lot involved. The, the issue is, are we interested in health for the right reasons? And and um, if you don't really care about being seen in your swimsuit, and that's not what's driving you, which is most people – then, then you know, you'd rather sit down and just watch TV at night and start snacking away, uh, have some ice cream and everything else. Um, the problem with that mentality is as you get a, a very unhealthy looking stomach, gut, it's a reflection of the status of your brain. You will, it can't do, your stomach and your gut, your brain and your gut are completely Interrelated. And so, there's not a free pass. Your brain doesn't get a free pass. You have no muscles on you. You're out of hell, And, and it doesn't mean you're not operating at what you could operate. You're not loving at the level you could love. You're not um, having friendships at the level you have. You don't have the compassion and the empathy. You don't have the desires um, with other people. You're You're much more impatient. You could care less about other people. And you watch our society and how we're behaving right now. And I'm just telling you, it's a reflection of where we stand in, in our health. It's our, it's our emotional health. It's our spiritual health. It's our physical health. It's all three. And, and good luck intertwining any of those, by the way. Um, I have learned for years, I grew up understanding this idea that there are cycles to civilizations. You know, there's a period when they're doing well, growing and progressing, and there's a period where they just are doing the wrong stuff, and it's deleterious to everything, and at some point they crash, they're over, and then they repeat this cycle. You know, that, that does involve, unfortunately, bondage and everything in that process. And so, you could see it historically, you can look at it in a religious fashion, but when I did the motivation factor, that's when I learned that you could actually analyze cycles of civilizations based on the health of the civilization. So there are moments when that society is really healthy, usually coming out of their, you know, slavery, bondage area. They had to do a lot of physical stuff, and, and then things get pretty good for them. They get fat and happy, and they they make some decisions they shouldn't make because they're lazy. They 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 have their, their ease gets to them. They're not willing to put out the efforts anymore. And so the whole story could be told just by our physical health abilities and and what we're doing as a people. And we could say, you know what, where are we as a country today? You know, where's this country today? And you can kind of see which country is going to be where their story is going to be in, in 10 years from now, based on the health levels of that people today. Because, again, you can't separate the brain out of the equation. It's going to be reflected in the the quality of the work, the customer service. It's going to be, you know, the, the amount of actual real innovation, which takes serious effort, serious risk, innovation, you know, money, all that stuff. Uh, people who are fat and lazy, you know, I'm speaking you know metaphorically, they're not going to be willing to make those efforts. And so it, and so we're seeing right now as a country. Everything we've been predicting was going to happen. It's already manifested. It's already starting to happen. But unfortunately, it gets much worse over the next 10 years. So these these are serious issues. And the right place to start is with ourselves and our family and anyone we can associate with. And the right way to do that is to show the the positive side to being healthy and exercising and being together with groups. Um, It doesn't take much. It's a simple, you know, one of those tipping points that we just go that direction. It seems to impact everything. But as we get more sedentary and and eat eat the foods that give us the instant rush that was super easy to pull out of the box, rather than sit down and wait twenty minutes for those oat groats to actually be soft enough to eat, and to just take them, open the box and put in the big difference in what that does to our health and and, and with nutrients and everything. Um, but one takes time and effort, and the other just doesn't.
0: Yeah. Well. Listening to, well, firstly watching the film, but secondly, even listening to that one conversation that I listened to driving up here, um, so many areas on this show are really about just reverse engineering to the nucleus of the problem. So I talk about drug prohibition, for example, mm-hmm. and what an absolute clusterfuck that was and how that's created so much pain and misery and violence and death and we get to see it i mean that's the, the strange thing about the first responder professions is you don't really hear voices from them nationally but we have a perfect lens on what works in the health what works in the violence prison system I mean, all these things you know is it working or not
1: but why are they taking the drugs i mean really when you look at that well, exactly
0: that's the point it's a mental health crisis it's not you know it's that when we made it illegal, we empowered the underworld and we criminalized addiction. I'm not talking about selling and smuggling, but um in, when you look at that, I mean there's a ninety year longitudinal study on the epic failure of that well, right. the thirties seem to line up with sure. you know other things too, like physical education, so it was I, all would, connected. I would love you if you wouldn't mind, walk us through the the value of physicality you know prior to the nineteen hundreds. And then, you know, when did things start to change in the West with
1: that? Right. So, so America has been through this before. And that's the good news. Um, all we have to do is almost do a 100-year look back, and we, we live this amazing parallel path. But in the 1800s, late 1800s, America was not in shape. We assumed everybody was physically fit. We, You know, I didn't even know that they had gyms in the in the late 1800s. I just assume people just you know were out in the farm working hard and nobody would go to a gym. There were gyms. They had gyms. And why did they have gyms? Well, they had cities. And as they moved to the cities, you know, everything that we're experiencing now fell apart. And and so there was a what do we do kind of thing. Well, they were doing it in Europe and so you had the frying you had these different groups that were basically doing renaissance lookbacks of what worked throughout history and civilizations, um, you when you look at the 21 major civilizations, you will always see a physicality there for two purposes. One, obvi- the obviously they, they need to be in shape, you know, get your people there. But two, they need to be unified, so you have them exercise together. So you you accomplish it together, um, and you get a lot happening when they can do that in that way. So there was in the 18... 18- you know, 40s going up to the 90s, this really interesting moment where we were concerned about food and food quality. Um, there were these clinics people would go to and learn all about it. Like, hey, how should I be eating? You know, what what should I should be doing? Because I know some of the food's getting bad. Well, in the 80s and 90s, 1880s and 90s, they were, they were just starting to come out with uh, vegetable oil products that was starting to happen. Um, the meats were things were being you know shipped. It, they had problems with um, uh, they had sugar starting to get introduced. There was a lot of stuff happening that that. So what should we be doing about that? And during the early 1900s, there was a concerted effort to bring about, um, and it had been happening. What was working in Europe, and that is your classical physical education. And with that, and and we've been doing it in parts here and there, and it was really at it. But then we had 1919 happen, 1918, and that there was two things. It was it was like a double punch that really took us off our game. Because you go back to 1910 and you know go look at us compared to other countries, and we were on our we were on. Point. We were doing great. Nineteen nineteen, you know, United States enters World War One. It's game over. We're we're a force to be reckoned with. We're nobody. We'd never been part of anything, but we had a fit people. And um, but then you have the Spanish flu breakout, which and you had a lot of fear. You had a lot of fear in society. And um, after World War One happens, which we got dragged in because of Europe the country becomes disillusioned with Europe and all things Europe. And we had these gyms. And in the gyms, there were things like Indian clubs and Persian meals and wands and, um, you know, goddess and all this old school stuff, dumbbells, and it all, ropes, it all gets replaced with balls and sports because all that other stuff came from Europe and they didn't like Europe because of what happened with Europe? Spanish flu comes from, everything comes from Europe, right? We hated what just happened to us. And so we go balls and sports. We get, we get out of the fundamentals of classical physical education that had existed. We can't find the beginnings of them. We really can't. It, it just seems like a, a really well-functioning society always had some elements of the same stuff. And um, so we stop and um, and that's our situation going through world uh, 30s. Um, there were the, a little bit of Renaissance as we saw Muscle Beach. Um, the first beginnings of Muscle Beach was a look back to what was wor- working at one point. But there was a guy named Griffin and he was a, uh, he was there in, in Redwood City. He was, he was a guy that was kind of doing what always was happening that they do the, the original classical physical education. He never stopped doing it there. Um, but, but most places we, we got out of it. And in the late 20s, we have a film that's in the motivation factor and it is a propaganda film. And it's showing elementary schools and the kids doing, you know, hopping exercises for their feet to help the, the arch in the foot. And it's helping them, um, elongate the spine, you know, by hanging upside down and doing all these things that we know to work. And they were correcting posture from one semester to the next. The school, the school teacher, they saw, hey, this kid has a school posture issue. Okay, let's use the physical fitness protocols that we know about. And they were using that. That was physical education. was there, And they were fixing kids in all these places. So that's where we used to be. But they had to come out with this propaganda film because and it was Beverly Hills um, school district that did it. Because it had already stopped by 1926. We had stopped that fast. Anyway, it didn't exactly start again. Enter World War II. Well, we got a big problem to then. And so there's this monster effort to go back and bring these people who actually knew what they're doing, get them back in the military, figure out how do you quickly get people in shape. And so there are a lot of people that got interested in physical fitness and stuff because of World War II. And, um, and then they went back and they started, you know, getting jobs in their school teachers. Um, well, you had a number of people. You have Eisenhower's president of the United States. He, there's this back doctor named Hans Krauss, and he came from Germany before World War II. He basically fled Germany uh, just before it. And, um, and he, is, he does this study in the United States. He's kind of a famous back surgeon doctor. He does this study in the United States looking at six, six essential things a person must be able to do. If you can't do all six, you will have back pain in your lifetime. And they do a test and they'd go over to Europe and they're finding their kids are getting maybe 8% of them, 9% of them are failing the test, you know, in Finland, different places. United States, it's 54%. Eisenhower freaks out. By the way, they did that test again in 1984 and it was 84%. Ron Jones did that test about five years ago to every kid who could test and they were all failing. Like, Like, there's a reason why we're in bad shape and why people are having back pain is we can't do fundamental basic things. But again, that test was given in Finland and they were doing like 8% were failing. And and that test, if it were given today, they still would probably be doing really well compared to the United States. So we got a problem that's becoming worse. So Eisenhower sees this and he creates the Presidential Fitness Council. Like we got to fix this problem. Let's create a Presidential Fitness Council. They bring in really impressive people in that first group. They're trying to get it, but, you know, it's politics. No one's getting anything done. Right about that time, um, we have Kennedy, John F. Kennedy. He's a senator, and he's he's really concerned about it. His back, his back problem, and his back doctor is that Hans Krauss. So, as you imagine, Krauss is feeding him, you know, every time he's seeing him. And so, it becomes an issue for, for Kennedy. And so, Kennedy becomes president. He's visiting Aerojet out in Rancho Cordova, Sacramento, right by where I grew up. And he has a chance to go meet with Stan LaPrade, who's a coach at La Sierra High, who was doing this exact classical PE system that this Griffin guy kept doing in in Redwood City, California. Well, the difference, the only difference was, is Stan LaPrade was a brand new out-of-college guy, out-of-military. First job was over there with Griffin. Learned on, the, and then he gets his own job being a head coach. You know, head a P- uh, PE for this new school, brand new school, in Carmichael, California, called Los Sierra High, and it was fed by three military bases. All the kids, so you had all the parents were military esque. the the every the the superintendent had been the captain of a battleship. The principal had been, you know, major guy in the military. You have La had been in it. La had been trained. So you got parents' support. You got all the school support. You have everyone's support. And he had just been fully trained in the system that had never changed. And so he just comes and implements the program without a hitch. Like, it just works. Like, this is no big deal. This is, everyone's like, yeah, this is great. This is all stuff we're familiar with. They have no problem. And that program existed all the way until the day they closed the school because of districting. They just didn't need the school anymore. And, um, and so the, the motivation factor looks back at that and John F. Kennedy meets with him in 1962 and he's so excited about what they're doing that he's, he knows he's going to desegregate the schools. You know, we're going to have blacks and whites in the same schools for the first time in the South. And, uh, what's that going to be like? How do you suddenly unify races when they're not getting along well? How do you do that? I mean, just being the same algebra class, does that just solve it? Do you learn unity by integrating the flux on the bottom half of a cylinder in calculus? You know, like what what makes you unified? How do you do that? Well, you do that, obviously, you do that when you're doing physical activity together in motion. And he was classically trained. He saw what they were doing and said, this is our solution. So he writes about them in Look Magazine. He writes about them in Sports Illustrated. And it becomes the topic. Like it's huge. Um, you have the president of the United States making a big push. It's in f- becomes, uh, it, they follow it in 4,000 different high schools. Well, Stan Le Prade writes the president and he writes the presidential fitness council a letter to explain how this whole thing works. And the title of his letter is called the motivation factor. So that's where the, you know, the film title comes from. And, um, and you look at it, and it's all in this letter. Like, it's really interesting what he lays out. In order to motivate people, you need external and internal motivation factors. You've got to appeal to them both ways, not just one side. And so, you know, externally, they had them wear color system, kind of like a belt system with karate. They had different color shorts. You know, you start with white shorts. And after you, and you start as a team, you're part of a team, but you also are individually, you want to be able to do some specific things as well that you get rewarded for that are in addition to your color thing. And, and so you're individually incented to perform well and more pull-ups, more push-ups, more all those things, faster running, whatever. But at the same time, as a group, you want your team to progress from white level up to blue level, and all these different color red and all these different color levels till you, you know, as a group, and they become more challenging. But you have this fundamental base, and the idea is that you move at least each year, and they're able to get all the kids to progress from one level to the next. I think they may have had two that didn't, like the whole time. They were always able to get them up to blue level. All right, that's like ten pull-ups. You got an entire school doing ten pull-ups. Right now, to get into the, the Marines, you need to be able to do three. And to graduate, you need six. It used to be in the Army, I just met a guy at Gold's Gym. He's 79 years old. He could do more pull-ups than anyone I've ever met. He says he used to not be able to do a pull-up at all. He went into the Army. And when he was in the Army, to go to the mess hall, you had to be able to do 10 pull-ups. I mean, you had to do 10 pull-ups. and And then you had to do 10 pull-ups every time you ate. So you had to do pull-ups every time you went in there. And 10... 10 pull-ups, or you're not eating. So, you know, you work pretty hard. And and they get these kids to be able to do stuff. Well, today, you know, go find any kid and hop on the bar. And if you find anyone who could do 10 pull-ups, you're really impressed with that. Now, I could do 10 pull-ups. I'm 52, but, but you know, I, I have always been able to do that. Uh, but it's really interesting to see how many today, they can't even hang on the bar. We have people go out and play and they, they'll do zip lining, kids. They'll hang on the zip line, they just drop like that's dangerous. We've got rid of pull-up bars in most places because people are getting hurt on a pull-up bar. How do you get hurt on a pull-up bar? How do you get hurt on these things? These are inanimate they they didn't used to hurt people. Why are they hurting people now? <laughs> they were still human <laughs> beings. Body parts haven't changed. Right? So um so what we're doing is we're de, we're de-evolving as a society and unfortunately there are genetic markers that get screwed up. When you become unhealthy and then you keep having kids, you can go the wrong direction as a, as a population. So, this isn't just kind of important. This impacts everything. Um, and so, we, I started there uh, and the motivation factor really wasn't a movie about high school PE. It wasn't. It wasn't to me. It was for us as adults to watch and hopefully motivates us as adults of what we need to do for ourselves and to turn our, our situation around because it's a baby boomer problem. Baby boomers will bankrupt America in, in the year 2020. I mean, those listening, if, if this is recorded and it's past 2030, they'll go, wow, that filmmaker actually said it was 2030, <laughs> but we will have a depression within a, a year or two of, of 2030. It'll be a social security trigger. I'm not the one calling this. I mean, I have these economists that work with us and we're, we're at grossly unfunded, but Medicare and that, its it, there's not enough money to, to pay the bills. Like we're, we're going to have a real big problem. And we, the only thing that's going to turn it around is if we suddenly get in shape. And they can, we can do this. Like it's not hard. So the question by Dan Party, he asked in the film, his PhD out of Stanford, he asked the question, how do you make someone love being a healthy person? And when you got to this issue that you talked about with the um, drugs, when you look at exercise, what you really are looking at, and and, in most things, I mean, almost everything, you're looking at a chemical exchange between the synapses and dendrites in our brain. And it's chemicals that are going back and forth. We are chemically dependent beings as humans. We need chemicals. We are motivated by our chemical need. And we can get it in a number of ways. You know, you can get the dopamine released by exercise, but in order to get it, you got to be in shape, good enough shape that your brain, your heart and your muscles can work together to release it. And so somebody who's not in shape and just starting to exercise, they're not going to get that great reward system. It might be it take them six months, but once they have it, they become addicted and it gets better and better and they want to exercise more and more. Like they just can't wait till tomorrow morning because of how it makes them feel. So, I exercise because of how it makes me feel, ultimately. I realized when I don't exercise that I'm one of those guys that has a little bit of a depression issue from time to time, but anyone knowing me says, well, that's impossible. You're not. Well, I don't have the problem as long as I exercise. It'll show up the day I decide to stop for like two or three, four or five days. Um, I'm not the same guy anymore. I'm not interested to be around other people, but I'm a total different human being by exercising. And so we're talking about the eighty percent people right now. We're not talking about the person who's really screwed up, and you know that 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 getting out there and running is not going to fix it for him. But for the majority of us, this is kind of this is what we need. And and um and so the drug prob the problem with drugs and stimulants is it rewires the brain. It, the brain's not stupid. It's like, oh, I got that release. My body just got that release, and all I had to do was take that pill. I didn't have to go out there and four thirty in the morning. It's really cold outside, and and start running for forty five minutes or an hour and a half and have that experience, or go hit the gym, or do these things. So, um, but the same thing with reward for work. You know, we we get the release when we do a good job. You know, we we, we put the effort out. We have this. It, it just our brains give it to us. And, but we could feel that way by just taking the drug too. And once that happens, oh, good luck rewiring. It's a, there's a lot of work. It's, that's hard. That's some hard stuff. And that's, that's the addictions. And so we're a complex system that requires movement. It requires movement. And the hardest thing for that brain to do is to move your arms around and physically do things way harder than it is for it to integrate the flux on the bottom half of a cylinder. My math example I used a few minutes ago. So you're not doing much when you're just sitting there thinking, but you're doing an awful lot when you're you know, moving that arm around and doing a complex motion and your heart becomes elevated and, and a whole system gets going. And, and so we have to move. And I learned for productivity that if I set my alarm and every 50 minutes or 40 minutes it goes off and I go outside and do 10 minutes of something and then come back, by the end of the day I accomplish more than if I don't do that. And, um, and if I'm doing something really creative and really hard, I set it at 20 minutes and, um, and I actually end up getting way, way more done. When I first started doing this, my productivity from one year to the next doubled. My income tripled, my productivity doubled. And needless to say, I became pretty hooked. (laughs) I was like, why would I not do this? And, and then we can look at the people who are like super, super successful and we see that physics, physical side to them. It's an exception to find that other guy, the Michael Moore looking individual. He's, he's much more rare. You see a Ken Burns looking person. You know, you see the guy who did, uh, fat, sick and nearly dead. I know that guy, you know, um, I should be saying his name. I don't know him, but, uh, um, Joe Cross. There the we go. Australian guy. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, I, I'm bad with names. It's now becoming very obvious. But the guy who did uh, the McDonald's thing, right? Uh, yeah. Supersize me. Mm-hmm. He's a good shape guy. Documentary You start looking through. That's just film, right? And you start looking around in CEOs. And you start looking at entrepreneurs. And generally speaking, you're looking at people who are in shape. It is a big part of their life. You know, that 5 a.m. crowd at the gym or whatever, They 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 get it in they have to get it in and so how do we do this as a country how are we gonna because because the film came out I thought oh this is gonna change everything here we go well let me ask
0: you that a second because I'm in this space yeah and I'm looking for films like that and it didn't come up on my radar so from a kind of um marketing perspective why wasn't the motivation factor firstly on all screens all the net netflix recommended but yeah. secondly at least in the wellness space because there's a lot of people i know that are in the same kind of space that hadn't heard of it and i was only i only heard of it because one of my guests mike Salemi, told,
1: told you about you. it yeah that's a really good question when we made that movie um we thought we had funding in the beginning and there's the big corporations and everybody we wasted a lot of time i mean a full year year and a half just chasing the, the money for the movie And it ended up being a complete waste of time. And and those involved in trying to come up, who had that responsibility, I finally said, let's just do a crowdfunding video. So I did a crowdfunding video. We put it out there and it goes viral. Eventually gets 50 million social media impressions, which is a lot. Um, And But the problem was, it wasn't my copy. People were taking the copy and re-uploading on their own Facebook. They were lifting it and then where it just says click here to support the film you know for the crowdfunding they i didn't put the link i just thought i never in my mind did i think someone would do this they would they would have change the link so it went to where they were selling fitness apparel <laughs> i'm Gosh. not making this up god and um and so the thing ends up getting all these views but we didn't get the money I think we raised, you know, less than $40,000 or something. And you, you can't do much of a major motion picture. I edited that film four separate times, six months each time. I mean, that was a, it was a four year of my life project. You know, I'm supplemented by doing other stuff. And so we didn't really have marketing dough, but I did still get because of all that. There was a lot of attention that received. I was on Fox and Friends, you know, for 15 minutes, you know, in the morning show and it got a lot of attention in 2017 little bit in 18, but 2017. And it was on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play. It's, it's there. Um, but as far as Netflix picking it up, Netflix did not want... They weren't interested. We submitted to Sundance Film Festival. They didn't pick it up. They, they wrote a letter. We got 13,600 submittals for documentaries this year. And, and I looked and I could see where I submitted with a view. It never was watched. Like It would show a click. <laughs> <laughs> when I submitted it, I give it to Netflix to review, and um, it, they, they turned down. Nothing happens. But they, I know they never watched it because I kept looking back. They had a clean link as well. Later, four years later, I go back to that link. It has a password and stuff. It's a Vimeo thing. There's 14,600 views on that thing. What's that? Somebody at Netflix shared the link. So somebody eventually got around to watching it, liked it enough to share it, and and they just went out there, and I wasn't paying attention to it. That was a pain. So, to answer your question, it really never got that kind of support. Because I, I saw Tiger King pop up. and that didn't, oh, yeah. And that didn't enrich my life in any way, no, shape, no, or form. No, 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 and, no. And, you know, as a filmmaker, I will tell you, it is, I know it will make me money. Like, you got to do things that will make money. and. Um, <sighs> It's difficult. You know, you come up with the really good independ- independent stuff. It's a cult following, that's what you end up getting. And there's a cult following. I mean, it definitely has that, but it's not it 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 it's the message itself is not one that the academic world wants at all. Well, and that's my point. I felt like, you know,
0: it's it's a film that should have been seen Special if there was ever a time to watch this film, it was the last two years. Oh. And it was it may not be suppressed, but the culture is such that the absolute shit that was on a lot of the streaming sites oh, yeah. that was front and center, none of that was to do with health, nutrition, mindfulness, you know, any of that stuff. And and this would have been a beautiful seed to sow at the beginning, so that two years in. We might have a bunch of high schools and middle schools that are doing proper PE. My son is in high school about a month in, he's like, Dad, I'm I'm gonna join JROTC. I was like, Wow, that's a, a change. He said, We're not doing anything in PE. We just sit there and and read stuff. Mm-hmm. And so he joined JROTC and kudos to that program. It's amazing. And they have a kind of hierarchy, you know, that they do Uh, Excel in a certain physical thing, they get pins. You know, academic. I went to an award ceremony last night where he got um, awarded for his academic achievement. As you say in the film, you know what the JROTC kids or or the sports program kids get. Every single child should be getting. And and if if I have a son that doesn't want to do PE because he wants to go to another class where he can actually do exercise. That's a fucking tragedy, you know, travesty. Absolutely. So your film is so important to educate us, the parents of the world, to start asking the right questions, to start getting things like this changed in our schools. Because a three-hour standardized test for a nine-year-old kid is not how we create healthy humans.
1: No, the whole the whole thing. Unfortunately... The whole school system's got some pretty big issues. I was pretty sensitive to schools in general. I, um, you know, I mentioned I got master library science at Indiana University. I actually went there to get a P, uh, my EDD doctorate of education. Um, and I, I go in first day before school, before the whole thing starts, and I'm meeting with the chairman and um, I'm telling him how I want to create this mentor based education system similar to what we see yeah, like Lund uh, University. So, so something we see in Sweden, you know, back in the day, early day, this, this mentor based education system. Old school, different way, not this. Everyone's in this class. You're this age and you're in this class and you're going to move up when the whole class moves up. And, you know, it's a lot more individual, you know, something that would actually be individual and work. Uh, Thomas Jefferson kind of an education, you know, the people who actually you're learning. It's not hard to improve. <laughs> It's not hard to improve on what we got. So, I tell him what I want to do. And he goes, you know, I got I got to be honest with you. Here, we have a program for you to get your doctorate degree that really helps you navigate it within the system. And he says it that way. For example, ED-5720. I was like thinking, man, 720. There's a class. That was a high-level class of 720. He says, there we have a we discuss how do we interject to get taught what we want taught. It was the first time that I even thought of that age. Somebody makes a decision about what we are taught. What we're going to do with that time in in the classroom. And um, anyway, in our discussion, I decide. This would be a waste of time for me to be here. I'm not going to waste four years of life. He, he says, look at to do what you want to do, you'd be better off to go out, just make some money and start your own school. Like, you don't have to do any of this stuff. Oh, oh okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so I um, went out, got a, different, got a master's degree while I was there on something else and went on my way. And my son um, was in second grade and was not doing too great. He was liking reading, but still was struggling on that SAT 9 standardized test that they gave. It was pretty low on several places. Now, we were concerned about it. And there was a traveling professor from a liberal arts school, president of it, coming and speaking. We went and listened to him. And at the end, I went and talked to him after and said, hey, my son's struggling. Second grade, oldest. he's my oldest son and oldest, oldest child we have. What should I do for him? He goes, here's what you should do. Um, you should pull him out of school. Just pull him out. Yeah, just pull him out of school and have him read the classics classics, like like the classics, like capital C classics, Greek stuff, Roman, I mean, the, the classics, you know, real stuff. Okay, well, what curriculum should I have them follow? Well, I just told you, have them read the classics. But like, what's textbook? Oh, no, 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 no textbooks. Just have them read the classics. Okay, so we were so naive as parents and <laughs> so frustrated with the school in California that I decided to actually do this. And so it's third grade, he's starting third grade, and I give him... Hey, here's the Odyssey. I'll show you. He, he struggles to get through the Odyssey. And we're reading like the headings and really, and I'm having to reread the first this chapter. And eventually he gets through the Odyssey. Then he tackles the Iliad. And then he goes after the Iliad, a lot easier, because he had already done the Odyssey. And after that, he goes, man, dad, everything's simple, super simple to read. And he's reading stuff, and I'm having to read Greek fragments of the Odyssey, all this stuff. Like he, he gets into it. And then he's learning Greek, and then he's learning Latin, and he's doing all this stuff, and we don't have a teacher. And, he, and I'll, I'll check in on him quarterly. I'm serious about this. Now, my son just got a job last week. He accepted a job. He's 28 years old, just finished his uh, PhD in in economics, and he just accepted a job with the Federal Reserve Board in DC. Wow! He wrote his dissertation on inflation, and he's in that group. He's gonna he 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 will his team directly influences and gives reports to 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 the to the chairman Powell. So he's gonna be that guy, right? (laughs) Um, Once he starts there, and so it worked. You know, it wasn't exactly a complete fail. And I watched him progress so fast. And we didn't have anything. We were following nothing. We literally just, here, read this book. And I was checking in on quarterly, inspiring him, keep going. Um, he had to do karate. We had to do physical stuff. But the point is, he did great without anything. And I'm looking at all the money and all the effort and everything we're doing and thinking they're doing scientific. And, oh, by the way, his SAT-9 test the next year, he was already at 90th 90 percentile instead of twenty fifth, and the second next year, hundredth percentile. So we drop him in sixth grade. He goes into the sixth grade and he starts. You know, they they three months into it, for two two three months into it, the the district president, the principal, and the teacher pulled me aside and said, "Hey, Doug, we need to meet with you about your son." And I'm like, "What did he do? Like, you're just freaking out, like?" And they said, "Well, and it was just me with them. My son wasn't there." Hey, we want to know what were you doing with your son before he came here? Because we think you should keep doing it. <laughs> like what? Well, um and the teacher like we got nothing for your boy. Like he's just we got nothing. I go, I thought you have like the gate program and this stuff. Oh yeah, we we threw that at him right in the beginning and he's bored with that. Well, he's not like some brilliant kid. He's just like every else. in the second grade he was like the these are the same kids he was in class with and now it's sixth grade he was below all of them. Like he's the same guy. And they go, they, so I told him a little about what I was doing, which isn't very much. I mean, it's just what I told you it's a bunch of classics. Um, but by the way, you're learning from the best. And, and, the, and this, this is a reason I'm sharing this right now, because this absolutely applies to how we exercise, what we choose to do, what, how important the motion is. And the quality of that motion is, it's not just exercise the kinds of exercise we do matters tremendously. You know, we have all these back problems, all this stuff. Even by people who exercise, they're jacking up their shoulders, they're screwing up this and that. You shouldn't be doing that. It shouldn't be screwing up. There's this thing called rational training. There's this fundamental restorative arts, which was a third of physical education classically. We don't do any of that anymore. Barefoot, for example? The barefoot thing. Right. Well, and the jump the hopping exercises to to re to, to form that arch in that foot. So that you can go out and run. And how do you run? And how do you what's the right motion? All those things matter. Anyway, long and short of it, the teacher said he's kind of causing problems talking about the Iliad. He's saying, I'm doing teaching it wrong. <laughs> I go, Well, I mean, I mean, you've read it, right? I asked, you know, that's the first question I asked. I knew my son had read it a couple of years earlier. You read it, right? He goes, I've taught it for 17 years. The district president catches that response. He looks at him. But have you read it? Well, I have have the reader. So the reader's wrong. The reader doesn't even match what he's teaching out of with what the Iliad actually says. And the reason I say that is we got to understand that whatever we think we know about exercise, it has been watered down and screwed up throughout the last hundred years so badly that it doesn't even represent where we used to be. And, and just by going back and doing simple first grade, basic exercises properly, you watch what happens to your body, your brain, everything suddenly corrects your back. I was going into a chiropractor three times a week and the chiropractor finally, I mean, chiropractors hate spine guys, you know, surgeons. And he says, look, I can't fix this. You've got this thing in the bottom of your lower spine and it's throwing you out every day. I can keep doing this every day, but you're not going to be fixed. You need to have that thing removed. So, I never got it removed, but I was doing the motivation factor at the time. And Ron Jones, the executive producer, introduced me to Indian clubs and showed me how to really use them. And every day I get this postural correction. It's a total fix. And, and it's just like going to a chiropractor. My, my, my left shoulder, I have these things out of joint. I know when I'm, when I'm stopped and just haven't been doing it for a few days. Like I, I start, I'm not in alignment like I normally am. Everything gets fixed. And I thought, wow. Indian clubs, well, Indian clubs take effort. You know, it's like a musical instrument. You're not really good at it for about six months of effort. You kind of kind of learn that. It's not something that you could just pick up and do. Um, like, like anything of worthwhile. <laughs> and so we, um, but, but if we don't teach people in school and, and then, you know, work, if whatever, they provide a gym, but they're not providing instruction. If people don't know how to exercise correctly, well, they're only going to have, generally speaking, a negative experience. They're going to get, they're going to get injured. What's the point of this? And that's it. It's over. And so, their education does matter. And as individuals, we need to make sure we're going to people who know what they're doing. And the people who know what they're doing doesn't mean they just have a lot of views next to their YouTube account, right? It's, it's, there's more to this. And it doesn't, and it doesn't mean that they're just, hey, look at them. they look at their six pack. Look how amazing they're. Yeah, are they twenty eight years old? Yeah, so most people doing anything look like that at 28 years old. Follow a guy who's 65 years old that still has that six-pack. Now, that's the guy to follow. That's impressive, right? Um, so, all these things are really interesting to me as I've gone through this whole process about how do we actually change our pe- the country? How do you change your family? How do you change yourself? And, and so I asked Dr. Rady this question at Harvard, I said, you know, and he's the guy that wrote spark, you know, that all that, all the research about exercise in the brain he's probably done, he really is the poster child for that and got a lot of credit of drawing out those 10,000 studies that have already been done of linking exercise in the brain, health, brain health, um, better performance academically, better performance professionally, um, better relationship quality, all those things, right? All the things that we really want in our life that we think are so important. There's no way to get there without exercise. Like you have to, you have to stress your system so it can appropriately stay healthy and do its thing. But, but just the right amount of stress. <laughs> not you too stress. much. Yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, I asked him, so how do you do this? He goes, I go, what's the right exercise? He goes, the exercise that they will do is the exercise that they will do. So you start with that. You start by having people exercise. So um, if I had one wish, it would be that we could start doing real exercise at the most fundamental classical level. And that we don't worry about anything else. We just look at the most basic motion exercises. And we have all the kids in school go through those basic motion exercises the right way. Teach them how to do it. Teach them how to be posturally correct. Teach their feet how to get the arches back. Go back and and do that for them. Because that's something that they could take with them the rest of their life. That's education that's really valuable. Yeah, that, I would start with that. I wouldn't be so worried about whether people can do 20 pull-ups and all these other things, but they're absolutely going to have to get off the ground. Your, your spine is being compressed every day by gravity. You have to be off the ground to decompress it. It releases things when you do. You feel a certain thing that happens. So these are very important things to do. That's going to be grip strength. That's going to have to first start by them just hanging on the bar until they can hang for like a minute before you even think about pulling up. Um, and then learning how to do a scapular pull up because you're not pulling from your arms. You're pulling straight from, from here uh, and and learning how to do these things correctly. That's going to involve actually the teachers knowing how to do that. And so we're in a, we're like preschool level. Like we're really, we kind of lost all of our knowledge. So it's bad. And then my film, it, it shows that there was one last school still doing that Prescott high school. Tell me about that because I know there's a sad story. Yeah, so out. Prescott High School, they learned, they went up and got <clears> trained <throat> in the 70s, uh, late 60s, early 70s at La Sierra. They um, they brought it back to the junior high level. They kind of watered it down a little bit appropriately for junior high, but it all was there. And they had a phenomenal system, and it, it was unchanged all the way up. The time I was filming them, everything was great. As we were getting close to COVID. Um, The coach there gets a little bit frustrated, calls me up one day. He says, Doug, you won't believe this, but the superintendent is just made PE optional. I go, right, because of COVID? No. Period. He goes, here's the problem. We've been banned from having PE. Like the schools, everybody went virtually. So I only have, you know, he only has two years of students. So we were in school for a little bit and then, you know, we had in that semester early, then we have the new people. So we're only dealing with the seventh graders who are now eighth graders in that new semester, if you follow kind of how COVID went. So those are the people who have to teach the next generation, right? Well, those seventh graders are no school, no nothing till the very end. And then bringing them back, he decides to make it optional. Well, if you make that optional, what's the next year going to be like? You don't even have anyone to work with. He says, "I'm going to be started from scratch in a year, and by the time we really are going to go all the way back in California, and I'll be started from scratch with nothing, but I don't have any parental support anymore. I don't have the superintendent support anymore. Um, like he had no support. Well, con- juxtapose that to La Sierra when Stanley Prada had come from the training, like like just like this guy, he had it, but he also had the superintendent and the principal, all the military guys, and all the parents were feeding them because they all worked for. You know, military stuff. So they all kind of, at least they weren't, they didn't have an aversion to someone doing jumping jacks. Where what was happening in the late 60s, why this went away when Johnson becomes president after Kennedy is uh, parents were seeing people do jumping jacks and they said, wait a second, we see them doing jumping jacks, which they're not even called jumping jacks, but we're doing jumping jacks um, in boot camp. We see, we see them doing jumping jacks in boot camp, and you have our kids doing jumping jacks here. You're just prepping these kids for a Vietnam War draft. That's all you're doing. That's what this is all about, which is unfortunately not true. Turns out, you need to be physically fit for reasons other than killing people. <laughs> and by the way, I don't know. I've never actually fought. But my understanding is when you go up to kill somebody, generally speaking, you don't kill them by going up and doing jumping jacks against them. <laughs>
0: But maybe there's two, one on either side, and you're like yeah. punching them repeatedly in the face.
1: I mean, I don't know. Maybe new Marvel movie, some weird character, right? Chubby Jack <laughs> Flash. You know I mean? um, but, but so, so it's just, it's the physical illiteracy that's out there that, that drove and the, the, the end of this stuff in the first place. It, it ended because parents thought this was too military looking. And you're like, well, why would it even look any different? Because I go to the gym right now, and it goes to the gym, and I see people doing all that same stuff. Yeah. All the same stuff. Push-ups and They're doing all of it. They mm-hmm. have this boot camp in there. They're doing all of it. And none of them are planning to go. I'm looking at them. None of them are planning to go in the military. So, so how come they don't have a problem with it? And what happens is when you're so far removed from what it takes to be a physically fit person, that you're just... Know, what's the word for it I mean, it's nice um uh you're very naive but it's a generational
0: problem the same same with the you know, obesity epidemic as far as what kids are eating it's the same with you know what we're seeing with crime and addiction is you know let's say I've, clearly there was a lot of mental health coming out of world war ii and what a lot of the people i've had on the show right. their grandfather that era was an alcoholic mm-hmm. their dad acted this way now mm-hmm. that kind of permeated into them And so you have a generation that was brought up thinking the exercise is some sort of commie whatever, you know, or, you know, some military thing. Or there's a fact that you were never exposed to that. There's that fear. Well, I don't want you doing that because I don't want to do that. Even in the first responder professions, there's a lot of people that have found themselves out of shape and they are in the union or their administration and they will fight Oh, yeah. fitness standards, because they know damn well that if they're held to that standard, they are going to have a mirror held up to them. And it's not about taking jobs, it's about bringing them back to where we need to go because no one wants their family dead because a firefighter was too fat to get up there. And that's the reality. But I see that in my profession too. I see that in, in the communities is this, once you get through a generation, now it's a real uphill battle because that family doesn't, as you said, understand what it's like to move properly and what it's like to eat properly.
1: So what happens? I mean, and, and we could, so you, so you have to look and, you know, Ron Jones will say, well, you look at history and there has to be a war and and, and the country has to go through, you know, almost bondage. You have to go back through the whole cycle before it, it recorrects. Well, I don't accept that <laughs> because we have seen some times where we have, you know, woken up and, and went at it. I had a gentleman on the show
0: probably a couple of years ago now, Pasi Salberg, who is originally from Finland. He's an educator and he actually lives in Australia now, but he tours around the world talking about the Finn education system. I think one of the really interesting things is when you look at the national rankings, Finland's normally the top or if not the top. Mm -hmm. And yet it's definitely a, a less is more kind of mentality when it comes to time, you know, sat down studying. So... Talk to me about you know, what you've seen in their system and and the impact of exercise and community on the success educationally
1: in the children. So we don't even need to go to Finland. We can still go to Ohio and we can look at boys' schools. And I'm not going to actually be able to come up with the name of it off the top of my head at the moment. But there's two that existed and have since the mid-1800s. And um, one... Takes a break every thirty-five minutes in the classroom. They send them out there for fifteen minutes or more, and the other one does it at twenty-five minutes. That's it. Class is twenty-five minutes, fifteen-minute break. Back in class, twenty-five minutes, fifteen-minute break. Their scores are off the chart. They're the best. The waiting list to get in is, is off. You know, and 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 the, their days are short too. And so we, for some reason. Decided that we don't care about quality and out and results, but we care about just a show. Again, this gets back to this is just decorations. Um, we're doing things to look a certain way rather than what actually works. And um, getting when you look at my son's story that I told you about with with school in second grade and he was having a difficult time, I said uh, what about asked him about curriculum question about curriculum and the guy the, the the president of the university says to me let me ask you a question and you'll know exactly what to teach your son okay one question yeah one question and you'll know how to do an entire curriculum for your son okay think about high school for a minute all right what do you remember like what i did he goes what do you still remember that you learned in that classroom he says, I guarantee you it was something you were interested in. Anything else is gone. He says, design a program that does one thing start where they're interested and go from there. I'm like, whoa. Um, you can't be interested in anything after sitting for a certain time period. It gets, it gets too long. Like, your brain just needs to do that physical break. And so the work day, the way we have it scheduled, is too long. The sitting in classrooms is too long. So Finland gets better test results because they don't have their kids sit so long. It's that simple. Their brain is capable to learn. The more physical, phys, you know, you just have to have this break. So now, like, I try to explore, well, how short can it go? I mean, I get excited. So, you, so that means if I don't like what I'm doing, I don't have to sit longer than 20 minutes. Like, I'm not going to improve that anyway. It it, it suddenly makes things more more doable for me. I can be an adult and sit down and do that thing I didn't want to do. And I'm going to be able to have a break for 15 minutes right when I'm done. And I'm going to be better off than if I sat there and suffered for a full hour or two hours or three hours through this thing. So anyway, that's helpful. I don't know. Sometimes I think, well, man, hey, church, you know, let's let's keep the talk shorter. Let's just... (laughs) <laughs> I start thinking of all these different things, which is just to be a little bit shorter and brief and to the point. Um, but the reality is our attention spans short and, and we are not benefiting from these super long, drawn out classroom experiences. So tests go up when you exercise. You get the highest test scores the closer you've been to physical exercise. They will go down and down and down, you know. So so if you if you have a kid, he, he's going to take a test. It's a super important test. You might want them to actually exercise just before the test. Go swim, do whatever they can. They can have dripping wet hair and go into the test, and they'll do better than if they crammed all night long, studied, study, studied, studied, no exercise, and then go and take that test. They'll do better the other way with exercise. And, and so will we in everything we do. And so usually be before interviews, before I do anything, I am um, – uh i always exercise before i go out and film and do interviews with people i have to because my brain needs to be firing all cylinders and working it won't it was it won't work um if i just kind of wake up and go i don't know i mean just read or i have to get the physical side to it
0: am i right in remembering that the term you used in the power of zero i think it was
1: was presenteeism oh that's motivation factor presenteeism okay yeah presenteeism is a condition where you're present but that's it (laughs) brain's not there you know and and that's what's affecting our our productivity in the workforce today presenteeism is a condition where you are just not feeling like doing it today and that's happened to a lot of people and the best way to, to the best antidote to that, the best way to f- cure yourself of presenteeism is to be in shape, to get in shape, and to exercise and take more breaks. And um, so, in a lot of ways, we've been talking about that the whole time, and everything I've been saying. Um, but that's 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 presenteeism, and it is a disease that's affecting our entire work culture, and now. <laughs> Now, you know, with COVID, post-COVID, now everyone's just at home. And if they're not even walking around to get a drink, they're not walking way down the corner and around the bend and down the flight of stairs to get that water cooler experience and walk back, they're not even getting that anymore. Now they're just sitting there and they have the water bottle sitting next to the computer and they just sip on that all day. You know, and then there's the bathroom like five feet away from them. They go to the bathroom and there's no movement or motion. And and good luck if you if you had a tough time with a product and you're calling them and that's the person you're calling for customer service, good luck getting much compassion out of them. <laughs> they're just not much they're hardly a human being anymore, especially by the end of the day. So we do need to So if I if I were to in fact I tried. I, I had a a professor at an MBA program and I and they were interested, but they didn't actually do it. And I said, look you could you could do a study and look at how much movement w- you should do as a, as a corporation, employees, and, and impact productivity. Like, like, what does that do to your actual bottom line? Like, can you measure that? And it's a super interesting thing to do, but you got to talk everybody into it. And in the end, that's what you kind of learn about. The things professors study are the things that they're paid to study. All right, so this is a money reality thing at the moment. It's not like most professors can just decide, I'm going to exert this much time and attention and I'm going to look at this question. What they really want is a grant out there paid for by a corporation that wants a, to, uh, someone to look at this question and they want to win that grant and then they got that money to look at this question. And that's most of the what's being looked at in America today. So the things that we're talking about, nobody cares. You know, there's no one paying for this. You know, no one's paying for it. But I always thought, well, man, McKesson or some major consulting firm, they ought to actually have a division and they actually redesign that workforce so that that natural movement's there and you would see dramatic increase in productivity. But I, I mean, that's that is the case, but I don't you know, it'll be a long time before we're there, I think. That's that's like an Elon Musk kind of a thing, you know, a company that actually, where people think and try something new, but, but yeah, but, but for us individually in our life, we should think about that. You know, where are you productive? And if you're not that productive, you know, can you just make a slight modification in your schedule? You know, some of us have like an hour, hour and a half time to sit down and just read something, but we would never think I should disrupt this midway through and go out and do like Indian club break or go do, you know. SE routine or some Chubby Jacks or whatever, you know, you don't think like that, but you should, you know, during the movie, you're watching a movie. Okay. Pause. What are you stopping it for? we are the MR? Cause hold an hour left. Yeah. Well, we sat way too long. We got, we probably should stop three times during this movie. <laughs> not, not that, that we care about productivity when we're just sitting around watching nonsense, but anyway. Well, you talked as well about the integration with uh, JFK,
0: you know, with the integration of schools. One thing I've observed in, in the multiple departments I work for was when the bar was held very high and when we suffered immensely together, there was absolutely that bonding, that community. So when I watch, um, the motivation factor and see the students of La Siena, um, you know, all in those teams working together, trying to level up to each, you know, color level, I can see how that would positively affect mental health, how it would kind of, remove ridiculousness like you know sexual or racial prejudice or anything because well you know we're team alpha or whatever it is Um and you see that on the football field people you know narrate how racist the nfl is or whatever it's like well dude you're all playing as a team you're all seem to be doing well you're all getting very well paid you know i think you know th- there's a bigger picture than this so the suffering you know suffering together element i think is huge what was the outcome of these PE programs in fostering the community?
1: So, last year, high, when I first started looking at that, I interviewed 200 people on the phone before I even started doing filming or anything else. And part of that was they started calling me. They found out I was doing this, and they kept sharing the number around. I'm like, I'm doing something else. I don't have funding for this movie yet, but here it is. Here comes another interview, and they walked down memory lane and one reoccurring theme I got that really just, it was like fireworks going off. You know, somebody, one of the one of their fellow students gets cancer and this person from the, their school class comes over. Now we're talking about 40 years later, right? They'll come over and mow the lawn. This person's coming in and then they, they just all network together and they all take care of this person. Now, we see that in like a, maybe a church community. We'll see something like that, or family. You know, they take care of that. Men maybe a really tight current sport team. You know, guys, they're they're part of a, a team. You know, pick up whatever that is, and after, and and they'll take care of their fellow teammates or something like that. You don't see something that stopped forty freaking years ago. And hey, one of our fellow Lost Sierra alum just got cancer way over here. They're they're ten minutes from you. Anyone want to go over and mow the lawn? Oh yeah, I got this. You know, and I'm taking care of this. I'm bringing this. And hey, you know, and that's what was happening. So this idea of community, right? Community. What is community? It's unity, right? (laughs) It's unity. And and for the common good, it's it's unity for the common good. And um, when you think about what are we, what's the purpose of government? I mean, why do we have our government? Why do we do this? I mean, what do we say that we really want? Um, Well, we want security. We want to be able to protect it. We want to be able to live our life. We want it to be better than if we were just all for ourselves. And so, community. And this idea of unity um, is something that you experience as well as have a desire for because of your physical health, mental and social health. Like those are all conditions that have to be there for it. So we desire to be participating in a community because we've participated in a community. I became interested as an individual in this idea of not eating food. Once a month and saving at least, even when I'm super poor, the money I would be spending on that food and giving it to someone else who's poor, who doesn't have food, that that I know hundred percent of that money is going to be used to help them. Because when I was eight years old and I was out in the garden trying to grow crops as an, you know, not knowing and, and not being able to express as an eight year old, my concerns, my parents would have so alleviated my concerns. Like it would have been fine. I, there was, there, we weren't going to go hungry. But as an eight-year-old, you don't know that. You don't know how to talk to adults sometimes, right? But but I saw it. I experienced this unity, this community of what happens. And so as, as a society, we need to experience it. And we experience it in a uniform basis together on the field. And we can through PE. And, and that's what was interesting. is I. The other thing is when I interviewed each of these students, these alumni at La Sierra, all of them had a story where life got thrown at them. Yeah. A diagnosis for cancer or uh, a surgery that went bad or whatever, you know, some form of life, a job loss and all the things that happened, death, loved one, all the things that happened to us. And we all look back to where we learned to have some grit. And most of us learned it. You know, some of us learned it over here. We typically never learned it in algebra, but, but we learned it somewhere. Right. And, um, All of them would point back that they learned it on the PE field, (laughs) in their PE class. All of them. We're talking about thousands of students saying the exact same thing. And suddenly I was like, wow, if you want to teach resiliency, and if you, and we say, what's the purpose of this government? Well, the purpose of the government isn't to go bankrupt. The purpose of the government is to everyone be miserable because the vast majority of our society can't even take care of themselves. That they have one problem coming up and they can't handle it, and everybody's drug dependent. They just want to be drugged up. They don't want to deal with reality. They want to kill themselves because it's too hard to deal with. And I mean, we go through the whole of an unhealthy society. We want to be part of a healthy society, and um, where where those you know safety nets are minimal because people are resilient. They can handle it. Well, you the, they taught that in PE. They taught it. It was a uniform method of dealing with the hard parts of life. And I thought, wow, that's a solution. Now, that's a solution we are actually looking for right now that cost almost nothing. It cost almost nothing to do with this. This is a program that didn't even have balls. <laughs> it didn't even have balls. I think you needed like a whistle. You know, um, you know, and the kids had to buy some different colored shorts or something, but those could have been done with like, you know, you could have just dyed a belt each time or whatever. I mean, there, there's a lot of ways around this thing that you could have made it pretty easy. Um, so, so it's an interesting thing when you think about this. Like what would it do for our society? Where could we go as a society? If the vast majority of us were operating at our potential health-wise, and as a consequence of that, we wouldn't be plagued with the financial debts that we have as a nation, where 80% of our debt and 80% of our healthcare costs is on preventable stuff. If we had none of that, I mean, you're talking about none of that. You're looking at uh, just, just take whatever people who died from opioid addictions, get rid of 80% of that. So now we're in a manageable number, right? You can look at the homelessness situation and you can factor in there's a big element there as well. That started, you know, with this drug study. So in all these things, one could argue that, you know, we could probably see maybe as much as 80, this is going to sound crazy, but when I went through the film, I mean, it really did open my eyes. I was like, we could see 80% of our problems go away because they're all intertwined here. I mean, we're talking about domestic abuse. We're talking about bullying. We're talking about, you know, the suicides. We're talking about the drug dependencies. We're talking about the people who just don't believe themselves and they give up. So they go to a life of crime, you know, where, where, how important is it that you believe in yourself? How important is that in reality? Like that's a faith thing. If you don't believe you can succeed, you won't put forward the effort and you'll just sit down and watch TV all day and do nothing. And, and then you're going to be a problem, a statistic, a problem, a burden, whatever on our society, somehow we have to pay for you. And, and, and that's a lot of people that, that are falling in that cap right now the way we're doing it, and and then when we then the government with COVID they were handing out paychecks you know to everybody like you know even I got one for my business uh whatever those PPP loans were everybody was because we couldn't work my income stopped other than the film stuff my income for a whole year, and um and, and you're sitting there going I don't want paychecks I don't want th- I want to be able to just do my thing like I, I hated that and and then you start getting these great checks like oh there's a big check and you stood whoa. I wonder if they're going to do that again. Well, 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 you're like, slap yourself around. Well, what am I thinking? No, no, no. <laughs> no, I become dependent on our government again. Um, there's, the, there's this story, and I always like to tell this story, and you can delete this later. No, uh, no, everything's the same. Okay, so Ken Burns does a documentary. Ken Burns is like, all of us documentary film bear- makers always, none of us think that we're better than Ken Burns because we're not. Ken Burns makes amazing documentaries. He made a documentary called National Parks. He makes these great historic documentaries. He made one on the national parks. And in one of the, and they're a series usually, and in, in one of them he looked at Yosemite and looked at the bears problem that exists. Everybody knows that these national parks, especially like Yellowstone and Yosemite, have a problem with their bears. It's a problem that still exists to this day. And it's so bad that if you go in and you have an ice chest, you leave it out, and you leave it unattended, they'll find you a grand, 1000 bucks, or more, sometimes $2,000 for leaving your ice chest out. You're like, wow, it's, it's kind of a lot. I mean, and, and it's funny because you go to my neighborhood. Oh, we've had a black bear in my backyard one time. Not while we lived here, but the previous owner. There's black bears all over Florida, but you don't have them going through people's garbages and all this problem. But you go to the national parks Man, they're all over the place having problems. Well, why are the bears in the national parks such a problem, but they're not here where the people live? And yet they're here. Why? It's the same freaking animal. So everyone should think about this for a minute. Why is there a problem? Well, Ken Burns documents the problem. What happened? So in the 60s, somebody, it wasn't a good idea, got an idea to put bleachers around the dumpsters, put all the dumpsters together around dinner time at night, a little after dinner, right when the bears are going to want to go out and eat, and open the dumpsters up and let the bears come in and start eating and fighting over the food in the dumpsters. And they had bleachers around for all the, the campers that night to come sit and watch and laugh, and they would eat popcorn, and they thought it was great. Till somebody coming through, one of the rangers, you know, probably one of those guys without the personality, decided... I don't think this is a very good idea. (laughs) Should we be doing this? This doesn't seem like a good idea. So they decided to stop doing it. Well, the next night, those bears come down to eat. Well, the humans are now the source of food. They hadn't been a source of food forever. They hadn't been a source of food. I mean, you go back as far as you go, they've never been the source of food. But hey, for the last four or five years, every night, they're the source of food. And so the mom's coming in with the cubs. They're all, they're all, hey, where's the food? So they just meandered into the campgrounds. Oh, there, here's the food. They put the food over here and they grabbed the food and they're trying to chase them out. Okay. You got to fight for the food a little bit here and there. And, and then, and then they had to um, haze them a little bit. They tried different things. They got, it took a long time for them to start doing that. But the problem is the cubs were learning from the mom bearer that the humans are the source of food. Well, that's still today. I went backpacking and there was a cinnamon bear that was bigger than our Toyota Corolla. I remember at that time when I was backpacking, I was like, that's the biggest bear I've ever seen. And it was coming in camp and it was looking for food. And we were backpacking. We were, we were in the backpackers camp up, uh, below Half Dome. Those who, who climbed that know exactly what I'm talking about. And, um, and, and it's a cinnamon bear. It has a name and, and it comes by every night. <laughs> it's a big bear. It gets a lot of food. So what happens is, and then then they were having cubs that would swat people going by them with backpacks. They would just swat it open because sometimes out would come out candy or food right out of the backpack. So it's a problem in 2020. It was 1960 when they created this problem. They only did it for a few years and then they stopped. It's still a problem today. They can't stop it. Once you wire your brain, That this is the source for your immediate fix on your drug chemical or this is the source for those paychecks. You do such a disservice whether you do it for animals or humans. We are all that way. And the best thing that we could do is instill in people and demonstrate and have them achieve levels of physical um, stuff that's hard for them and achieve it that they didn't even think themselves that they could do. But you showed them, you gave them goals, they followed it, they achieved it. Wow. Now they suddenly can believe in themselves. They may not have been taught, they may not have come from a family that ever would have been taught that, but now they believe in it. And um, and it doesn't matter. We were looking at Prescott PE. I was interviewing kids that are in the movie that were living in their car with their mom. That's where they lived. And they had no problems with bullying. They'd had problems with bullying before, school, week, but not at Prescott. They totally believed in themselves. I've followed these kids since. They all, every one of those kids in that film are super successful kids. And and I'm sitting there, why would you close that? Why would you end that? What kind of moron superintendent would do that? Only the kind that is a complete ignoramus on the topic. Like, you would never do this. But the problem is, where in their education would they even learn about this? It's absent. So, are they educated? I mean, the, the idea: Are you an educated person? Really, must be evaluated this moment in our society. Um, if you don't know how to properly eat, and properly walk, and properly sit, and properly run and exercise and move your body, are you an educated human being? If you aren't, if you don't know how to optimally study, optimally work, and how to intertwine exercise with that to hit optimal productivity, are you an educated person? you might be able to do some interesting things technically, but you're you're not there yet. And and so we do need to reevaluate this whole thing. And and what the what the ultimate impact will be is we will correct our national debt. We will bring healthcare costs back in realm. We will bring people so they're interested in behaving and talking to one another again and be interested in being with each other. We will improve qualities of relationships. We'll have people who will actually strive, who have given up, who will now believe in themselves and strive. Like that's that's the big carrot here for us to go for, right? That's the reward. It's worth the effort to actually do this. And I don't know what the substitute would be. I don't know what it is. I'm watching everybody come up with it. Like these, these failed, pathetic people who are running for president, both parties, every time they come up with their ideas, I'm like, that's not going to work. <laughs> if it's an idea that's been tried before, it failed every time. And why are we going to do that again? And then, and then it's like, okay, that sounds like what we try to do with the, the bears in Yosemite. You're going to make another group of Americans dependent on you. Great idea. That has never worked. Like, how has that worked with any group so far that we've made dependent? that has not helped them. Instead, you got to actually, how do you go the other route? We need to help people realize that they can do it. And, and you know, you give them people, you know, a, a nice little things to, 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 Enable them, help them succeed, but you don't, um, you don't just hand it out. Well, well, based on that, so The Power of Zero is another
0: documentary that you made. Um, a really, really, you know, fascinating kind of view into the, <laughs> the fact that the money's going to run out at some point. And as you said, the baby boomer generation. Yeah, that
1: was back in 2018 when the national debt in that film was approaching 20 trillion and we're now just past 30. Yeah, and you predicted that. I didn't predict it that fast, though, to be honest with you. Nobody did in that movie. Like, it's kind (laughs) of scary. It's getting way worse, way faster. Well, and it goes (laughs) back to so,
0: with you talking about the health, I mean, again, our perspective, you know, my career, I got to see the ripple effect of the ill health, the ripple effect of the mental health crisis, whether it was overdose, whether it was violence, you know, all these things. And what you talked about in the motivation factor specifically is. A resolution for so many problems. Community. I mean, like you said the left and the right. I've talked about this all the time. I can't stand either of them. These leaders were asked to lead and you know, we realize, okay, neither of you can. We get it now. And that's a big surprise anyway. But, um, and we need real leaders. We need a system that creates real leaders, but there's no sense of, there's very little sense of community. This division was so easy. Like you said, even the, the paychecks. One of my previous guests made a good point. There's a lot of people that hate their jobs the moment this came around, they were like, I will gladly stay at home. I don't want to be at work. I hate my boss. I hate what I do, you know, but so what they did at last, last year Las, is it's La Sierra, isn't it? La, mm, La Sierra. I think, mm. I think I might say La Siena before. Um, is, is the answer to so many things. And, you know, the national debt, you look at the, I think we're what, 4% of the, the world's population. I think we use something crazy like 80% of the world's opiates. We've got 25% of the prison population. I mean, they're just the statistics go on from supposedly the greatest country in the world.
1: Oh, and by the way, let's just look at COVID. The number of people in the ICU in America is 77 out of a hun- out of a million. The number of people in the ICU in Japan is seven out of a million. And the next highest below us is Canada at 20 out of a million. So you're like, wait, that's the same illness, right? COVID's not different in Japan or Canada than it is here. But as far as in the ICU, and you're like, why so many more of us in the ICU as a percentage of the population? Oh, different vaccinations. No, no, no. No, it's the population health itself and you can just look at the obesity each of those countries where does japan and where's canada and where's the united states canada's way up at the top obesity canada is also pretty high so japan united states is the top canada's you know in there pretty high so it's up there next and then and japan's like 150th way yeah. down there finland sweden and, and yeah Norway. they're off the chart low so so you could see and then you're like, okay, what's the cost? What's the cost per drug that you're given in the ICU? And it all goes around to the individual. So we are the sum of our parts and our parts are unhealthy. So
0: I love this kind of question that I posed to you. You're king for the day. You get to design the, the PE program and, you know, the school day in general, but especially the PE program. Starting today, we're giving green light. We're giving all the funding to be proactive instead of reactive. What do what do the PE programs look like from here on in?
1: Yeah, well, school's half a day total. Um, that's easy, um, and um, and you're probably not going to hit the same classes each time, e- each day. You know, you you would go, you know, A and B. Um, And the PE program would have a third of it. The thrust of it would be restorative arts. So you would train them how to do Indian clubs and wands and, and the Persian meal. You would train them how to get off the ground with the bars. You train them calisthenics. You would do group exercise. Um, And PE would be an hour a day. You, you would give someone a, a heart pumping hour day experience and you would require showers um, there's a lot of reasons why and and possibly where you could you know you would do outside almost exclusively outside for that hour every day so if you're in a super cold place you'd be outside exercising in the cold there and if it's super hot and gross you'd be out there exercising in it it's good for our bodies to acclimate with where we're at lots of good reasons why so so we would do that for sure. So it would involve group exercises. I would do the SE routine-like experience for sure all the time. That would be part of it. Um, I don't care if there's one ball or sport involved at all in PE. Um, I would also incorporate with it um, basic nutrition. I would train them how to eat what they eat. I would train them how to pair foods together. This is something no one talks about. I would train what alkaline food is and acidic foods are and encourage them to get to like 78 to 80% alkaline and 20% acidic. So um, you're not going to do something like meat on a hamburger with a white hamburger bun and Mm -hmm. potatoes in in the deep fried oil with a shake. It's all all acidic. Like you're doing nothing but acidic. Like you wouldn't do that. You would have... You know, a meat and these vegetables and whatever. So, I would, I would actually teach them that, you know, train them that. So, that would be health for me. Um, and that would also involve the postural science, postural correction. I would redesign completely all the desks. There would not be a flat desk ever again. You would have slanted desks, 22% to 22 degrees, that, that's absolutely critical. I would redesign the classroom so the lights coming in aren't refracting the wrong way off of that so that the students are facing with their eyes and their, their their necks the right direction so that they're not turning constantly the wrong way and screwing themselves up and that, that that's to the floor and that, that the whole thing said I would teach them how important it is. To be like a drafter, you know, that you're sitting there in that setting and that they, they carry that on at home and tell them, you know, don't go home, start doing video games and be all slouched over this way. Do this. You know, I would, I would teach them that. Um, and, um, and then for the education, I would, I would probably eliminate almost every textbook there is. I, I would, I would, I would write all the freaking time. I wouldn't be so much concerned about grammar. I'm very good at it. You know, I'm an undergrad. I could write. I've edited major publications. I've done all that stuff. I mean, as good as most folks. Um, I write my scripts. I, I know what I'm doing with that space. But I do know that um, I don't think too much about prepositions. Is this dangly modifier? This, okay. I don't mind learning that. We, there's times to learn this, but kindergarten's not one. And in our schools, in our freaking schools right now, kindergarten here, they're teaching prepositions and all that stuff to kindergartners. This guys are so, they don't know what they're doing. They so don't know what they're doing right now. So I would do a lot of writing of expression, learn how to really write and write a lot. Really flush through it. Handwriting. I would teach handwriting. I would not let them type it. I would have them handwrite it. Because you need the feedback and you need the fine the fine motor skills of the hand. Like you have to do that. Don't, we're, we're losing that and it needs to come back. And if, and if anyone's listening right now and you haven't done this for a while, get like the remarkable two pad or something like that and start writing, start writing a lot. Like as you'll, you'll see what starts coming back to your life. So I would have them read from the best. So the best classics you learn from them. I would get ideas and I would care less if something was written last week or 3000 years ago. It doesn't matter. We're all humans. It's all human experience. And, and you want to learn from, from best and with that. So those are those are so those are the things that I would do that would change it dramatically, and and really those are the elements. That's all you have to do, and things would would change around. Um, but again, the school day, the classroom day, it would be twenty five, thirty five minutes in the classroom, and then you move. Now you might still have to come back to that st- subject, but um, there wouldn't be. You wouldn't sit longer than that. If if you chose to do a traditional school, you know, setting as opposed to more of a Doing that once or twice a week, and then you're in a mentor-based situation or whatever, which I is actually still superior. Um, I really am a fan of teams and people interacting with others and, and doing that together. And um, but doing that right, so that you don't just have them flounder and 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 hate working with others, so that because it doesn't work, because this person's not trying, and all this stuff. Um, there should be a lot of thought and work into that, so that that's a good experience, and they 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 experience the value of. Hey, we pulled this together and look what we just accomplished. Like this was really impressive. When I do movies, I can't do, although you see my name everywhere. It looks like I did all of this stuff. It's impossible to make a movie by yourself. You know, some of these movies, it looks like a city there. You know, there's so many people and and every movie is really its own company that you're creating. It's its own. You're bringing all these people together. You're finding these experts and, and you're getting feedback from everyone. You're putting something special together. That is, um, A skill that once you experience and go, you know what, it's better together than it is by myself, that realization is helpful so that we are interested in community and doing this right. Like I can be better off part of a community and we need to experience that again. We really do. Um, And this COVID has served as an excuse for those who had nefarious aims to push their agendas forward. And they absolutely have harped on it, harped on it in a major way. And and we got to be very careful right now because that's that can't happen. We have to have community. We have to have freedom. We have to be able to assemble. We have to be able to speak. We have to protect each other's rights to say it, whatever it is. We have to have the freedom of religion and ideas, full freedom, full freedom. This idea that Congress will make no law establishing, you know, a religion or or prevent the free exercise thereof, which means they can't prevent the free exercise. (laughs) You look at all these things and like, there's a reason why we came up with this verbiage. There's a, what we were experiencing as a people before and throughout history, and these were well-educated people, you know, Thomas Jefferson has the Thomas Jefferson education. It's a very well documented mentor based system he went through. Super educated. You know, Adams could, John Adams, he could, he could, he could talk in three different languages fluidly, age 12 with you. You know, these people, they, they, they would have a small library, but they had read every book and thought about what they read. There's no thought in what we're doing right now. It's like, we, we, we somehow want to say, just because you heard it, a fact, we got the fact into you and you can regurgitate it, that now you're a thinking person. I graduated from college. I'm educated. I could think. Not really. All you, you, you Just go back and rethink about it. how many papers did you really think about or did you just try to give back what that teacher wanted? We've been taught what to think. We've been taught how to express it. But um, there's a reason why the entrepreneurs who drop out from college are doing are the standouts now. Because they think. And so, for those of us who went to college, it's like, okay, well, wait a second here. I also want to think. <laughs> what do I need to do right now? Like, how do I really do this right? And um, it's a fun thing to explore and realize, okay, I've got a lot of room to grow. And a lot of that great thinking happens while we exercise. Our brain's free. And so, I'm a big fan of not listening to music while I exercise, Listen to the sounds of nature. Dr. Rady, when you interview him, will say that, that it's better for your brain to hear the dog barking and, and, whoa, is that a dog that's going to attack me? Then have it completely drowned out because you you got the thumping of some music going through and you're just running along or even on treadmill where you don't even think about anything, you don't, you don't have to worry about that. But if your brain has to do all this other work of situational awareness and you are doing something complex and you're moving and your heart's going, you're doing all of that together, well, man, you are building a super strong, resilient brain and it's going to reward you with this beautiful chemical cocktail <laughs> that's going to bless you in so many ways all throughout your life in every way.
0: Beautiful. Well, I think that's, that's the, the, the common theme. And it's definitely the reason I started this podcast. It came out of six funerals I went to of firefighters. But when you take a step back and you think, like you said, rather than being fed information, you think, and you look at the world we live in, especially you know this country we live in, and you look especially through a first responder's eyes and you ask yourself, the way we do it, is it making the streets safer? Are our people as healthy as they can be? You know, are we prepared? God forbid if we, we get invaded, you know, and, and the answer is no, no, and no. And so it's time for us to say, look, the way you've done it, we've given it enough time. The same way as, you know, this two years of the, you know, we, we, li- a lot of people listened and we've played that game and it's time to move on. It's time to change it. But with the health of the nation, The statistics show that it's been an epic failure. The way our food is processed, the way we eat, the way we move or don't move, our mental health kind of philosophies. So it's innovations that we need. But as you mentioned, it's really about going back to what people did. I mean, literally a 100 years ago is a great benchmark. The way our great-grandparents ate, they moved, they were learning, The, the sense of community in the smaller towns back then. We need to refine that. And I think, you know, putting... Looking at the way we do schools, and obviously, as you've talked about a lot in other, you know, other um, conversations and in, in a documentary, there's an ownership in the house. And we're not talking about ignoring that, but creating that environment to thrive. And I talk about this, it's easier to point a finger at someone who's out, you know, out of shape and be like, well, if you just ate well and in you know, the addict, or if you just stopped drinking, you know, yeah, but it's in the environment as well. The environment the last two years, the gyms were closed, fast food and alcohol could be delivered to your house, not an environment to encourage people to, to, to choose healthily, you know? So in our schools, when our kids are first learning and then as the multi-generation, now you create probably a lot more intact households again that are teaching their children from day one, how to move, how to eat. We have to start today because as, you know, as you touched on the only contributing factor that differentiate countries with this COVID epidemic was the underlying health of the nation. And if this isn't the biggest fucking red flag, then absolutely. I don't know what it is.
1: Absolutely. You're absolutely right there. If I were gonna try to destroy a society, like what would I do to really just destroy that society? Because it's hard. You know, if if we were all physically healthy and everything's rocking and rolling, How could China come and take over the United States with 300 million people armed? Right. You you, look at how well no one's taken over Afghanistan ever. You can't take over an armed people who's healthy. You just can't do it. They have to. They have to give up. How do you get someone to give up? Because you ultimately you still can't just take over. Well, one thing I would do is. I would make it so they can't meet together anymore and have that interaction, right? There's no more community. I would make it so they, they're sitting around and they're just, you know, mentally not healthy by no physical movement anymore, right? I would definitely cover up the mass so that everyone's depersonalized. <laughs> I would serve them junk food nonstop right i would serve them chemically you know mind stimulating drugs i would entertain them with absolutely nothing nonstop so that they just sit around and just like you know you're like a little i'm watching this tv Oh, it's a pretty ball it's a pretty whatever oh look at this and hey that's interesting and someone's invading from another planet in this movie there's a there's an idea that i've never heard of before <laughs> that would be nonstop i right? would the same old thing entertain them. and then um and then lots of options like that when you start going through this, it's pretty spooky because what we are actually doing in our society is exactly what you would do to destroy the society. I would I would financially task it to the point and I would just start sit, printing money and sending so much out there that it's just mind-blowing per person what it would take. Do you realize... Right now, we talked about power zero. And by the way, I make financial films and I make health films, and they and they're they're just an A and B of the same coin. That's all those are. People, when you really look at this, you'll see it. But um, the Committee for Responsible Budget back in 2015 looked at the question: Can we solve our national debt deficit? The deficit. So there's the, there's the debt that we have, and then there's the deficit what we're missing. Can we solve that? by taxing rich people. So they looked at people who make 400000 or more, let's tax them. What would we need to tax them at? And they 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 realized that they figured it all out and you'd have to tax those individuals at 110% of all their money, 110% per year. Go to LeBron James and say, hey, I want to take 110% of your money. So not just all that you made this year, but 10% more than that, you have to just, it's going to cost you. He's gonna say that sounds like something else from way back in the past, right? That sounds like slavery, but worse. (laughs) That's like worse than slavery. (laughs) I got to pay to be a slave, right? I'm paying to be a slave. (laughs) That's not gonna work for me. Um, And so then they're like, okay, that won't work. Let's drop it down to um, those making two hundred fifty thousand or more, and and they found that okay, we're only down to ninety two percent gross tax. That doesn't work if you live in the state of California, with you know those people at that economic bracket are paying maybe eight, 10% state tax, right? So that won't work. So then they looked at, okay, 150,000 married, 150,000 filing joint. So basically people make 150,000 a year as well as those who are filing joint, 150,000 a year. So a lot of people now. We're in a lot of people. You would have to tax them at a rate of 82%. 82%, this doesn't include your state tax. In order to be balanced 10 years later in our national debt. This was the year 2015. This was before COVID. This was before the Trump tax cuts. Before all of that. Then back when the national debt was about 16 trillion, not 30. So then like well what are you going to do if we just can tax everybody? Those guys making McDonald's the 50% who aren't paying any federal tax it has to be a 52% tax rate to solve the then stated deficit. Now, we've added, we've doubled our debt since then. And with every 1% increase in interest that goes up, which, by the way, we're at an all-time low, but if we raise it 1%, every 1% is an additional $300 billion dollars that we have to come up with in taxes for interest on that, that year. So if you were to raise it three, four points, five points, you're, you're, it's additional trillion of taxes that we don't have. And you go look what we do, you realize we have a little bit of a problem. Okay, It's such a problem that it's impossible to continue the direction we're going. It's why Obama and every president since and before and everybody looking at this question stated, this is unsustainable. And then we have new presidential candidates always come in, and they have a new idea. Let's give everyone free college. Let's let's make healthcare, Medicare for all. Let's do all. Like, no, okay, no, that's not the solution. <laughs> what we're talking about is the solution. This is something that actually gets to root cause and strips away the vast majority of it because we couldn't tax a person who's working minimum wage at McDonald's fifty two percent of their money. I don't think I could handle 52% of my money going away. Yeah. How would that work? I mean, it would be really tough. So, um, and that's what it had to be in 2015. Today, if they were to do the same thing, I would, I was thinking about doing that and making a documentary on it. When I really looked at those numbers, I realized this is not a film that I should make. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, really bad. So instead, we should look at what can we do. And I really want to thank you for this interview because we've focused on here's what will actually, this is something that really will make a difference. Um, how do we scale it fast? How do we scale it from the rest homes all the way down to the preschools, throughout the corporations, and and, and most importantly, our individual lives? Like how do we do that? How do we make People love being a healthy person and decide that that's their top value, because it's the driver of everything else. And then, then, and then the the adaptation of it. You know, you have an injury. Well, you still need to do some exercise. Now, you won't be able to exercise that part of your body. But what can you do? And and don't come up with ex- don't don't allow the excuses. I mean, there were people who just did things in their house when they couldn't go outside. They they figured it out. They did what they needed to do. And they were resilient. And they had good relationships. They 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 went through. They they flourished through it. Um. And then the those that just use it as an excuse to sit around and and it was it was endless caramel corn and <laughs> and ice cream shakes. <laughs> and um, they're not doing too great
0: right now. Well, Doug, I want to thank you. I mean we've we've had such a great conversation, but genuinely, like I I I think one of the best things that's come out the last few years. It is, you know, podcasts, documentaries, this unfiltered channel where you can get good information. Of course, every single one of us ultimately has some sort of agenda. My agenda, I hope, is clear. I hate people dying and being ill. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's so important to have these conversations. But the motivation factor, every single human being needs to watch that, full stop um the power of zero again when you tie in the the, the financial side and it's funny because I started watching it at first and I'm like oh this is about money I'm not sure if this is my then then the light bulb went off and I'm like oh wait a second the solution to this is exactly what we've discussed you know the 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 impact of the ill health of the nation is the reason that we're so damn poor and add the you know add the uh propensity to join wars very easily
1: and then you've got the whole pretty much the whole solution fasting was another fascinating one at least the first 30 minutes everyone should watch the first 30 minutes of fasting that's a prescription because that that we're looking at what happens when you don't eat at night and why if no one's listening the, the 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 shortcut is think of it like a dishwasher our human body has a dishwasher and it it needs to have an empty gut to turn on for eight hours so, if your gut's been empty for eight hours, it'll turn on and it takes four hours to run. So, and that does the precancerous screening, taking out, it's regulating your blood sugars, your blood pressure. It's doing all of that. So, all of the chronic illnesses kind of go away if you happen to be a rat. They did all these studies just by doing that one thing. So, there's a lifestyle adjustment that will, that, that will make you feel super clean and great by just not eating basically after six o'clock.
0: I hmm. fell into that by accident. So after I transitioned out of the fire service and I was at home every day, which was also an adjustment because I was moving even less. The fire service were a lot more sedentary than we realized. We sit in the vehicles. We sit in the back of the ambulance. We sit doing reports. We sit doing online training. We sit a huge amount. Um, but I, my my uh, day shifted. We're now, okay, every morning I can go to jiu-jitsu now. I can go to the CrossFit gym. The beginning. So I was coming back at like 11 o'clock and then starting to make food. And by the time I was eating, it was almost 12. And so I was inadvertently having this 12 hour window. And I noticed A, my workouts were amazing on an empty stomach, you know, and B, you know, I wasn't getting as much bloating and kind of sluggishness. And, you know, I never, I always felt intrinsically like it wasn't good to eat late. I could just feel that in myself. But, um, so yeah, and you, you touched on that even with crappy food. In that window, they still saw benefits. So then obviously the answer is, well, we'll eat good food in that window and it makes more sense. And you look kind of evolutionary at it with, with natural daylight. You're probably not pigging out at nine o'clock at night in the winter. So, you know, if
1: anytime I question something, I'm like, all right, what would we have done a thousand years ago? Exactly this. Just go backpacking and you'll experience it real fast. Like you get so much daylight. It's all perfect. You're super tired. Sun's going down. You've already had dinner. And you're just asleep. Sun goes out, you're asleep. You wake up four thirty in the morning about an hour and a half before it's even light. You're moving. And you're not eating until, you know, you're done hiking a couple miles or three. And it's perfect. Like it's just it ends up being perfect. Um but we're doing that all wrong. A lot of people are eating that they're they're being told unfortunately by personal trainers who don't know better, you know, make sure you're eating something just before you go to sleep protein or whatever, drink, and then, then, then eat a moment you wake up, eat some food and then go hit the gym and like, you know, no, uh, you're going to be, you're going to develop prediabetes and hyperglycemic and all kinds of problems by doing that. You got too much going on that liver, that liver does not want to and need to process that much that often. So give it a break. (laughs) break. Yeah. So these are, these are fundamental things that I've benefited from tremendously and not one idea is mine. And that's super important. You know, I have a documentary film. I'm documenting those. I was the number one head hunter, tech recruiter in the country. Ninety five. I, I, you know, I so I, I focused on competitive intelligence. I got my master's in library science there in school. I became very good in intelligence and looking at it. I, I learned how to track industry experts based on their habits on the internet within the Unix world pre World Wide Web. I kind of followed that through afterwards, and um, and so all my films are as I'm identifying. You know, you hear me talk about classics for education, learning from the best people. Well, all that I'm really doing is identifying who really are the people who've demonstrated ideas that are really, you know, something we should look at and then synthesize those. And And that's what the movie is. It's, it's not Doug Orchard. Um, it's not, you know, I, I don't actually have the high opinion of myself for a lot of good reasons. I mean, I know, I, you know, you live your own life. You're like, oh, I'm not great. Um, but these people have some really huge contributions, and so like you, you're trying to be a mouthpiece to a channel to share those ideas um, because those ideas and those individuals don't even have a voice, and they're not ever gonna um, for what they do. they're they're focused on what they're after and um, so as we as humans in a community spirit share these ideas with each other, um, and we say, oh, it's not science. Well, there's different levels of science, right? There's, there's the question, too. And, and what does, should science even look at? You know, is there something that's happening that we're seeing a recurrence of and it appears to be good? And, and, and for me, the nexus that's interesting that I make a movie of is where history has – we've shown through history it's beneficial to maybe thousands and thousands of people or maybe for thousands of years – and then science has now just discovered, oh, it turns out this is actually really beneficial scientifically. You know, when those things cross, when they're both going the same direction, that's a pretty safe thing to make a movie on that I know I've got at least a decade or more run on. And, um, and it's a really interesting place. And, and it becomes very frustrating when we don't do it as a people. You know, we know everything we've talked about. These aren't theories, I mean, it's not a theory that the human being has to move. We, we see what happens when you become sedentary and lethargic. What happens to your brain? What happens to your mood? What happens to your spirit? What happens to your relationship with others? What happens to everything? And, um, and yet the response from school is right now, for some reason, sit more and more and more and more. And let's eliminate PE. Let's eliminate breaks. Do you know that the, um, the elementary school right here where I'm at, they, have eliminated all breaks they get a very short lunch and they get one 15-minute break they've eliminated all of them oh i don't know what they're thinking these are kindergartners and <laughs> there's they're in there until two o'clock in the day well, there's no freaking way in the world if i had a child that age which i don't that i would actually do that to them like i i, I you know i don't even know what they would end up like on the other end it's um it's not it's not right So let's, we're going to have to become involved. We really are. We're going to have to become a little more involved in a loving community way to make differences. And you're right. The leaders right now, they're a big fail. And, um, and I have met with them, a lot of congressmen, everyone else. And I said, well, how, what drives the discussion? What drives the conversation? What happens behind that curtain? You know, like wizard of Oz, what's going on behind that curtain when no one is looking what's going on back there? And they say, the only thing that's discussed is what's been on the news the past three nights. That's it. There's no, hey, guys, let's talk about this problem in our country. We've identified with with this big budget we all have. We've identified these following needs. We need to do this. No, it's what's being discussed on the news. And so the news, of course, is corporate, right? Right. It's financially owned by six entities. And, and so they're driving, they're driving the show. You got that. You got the lobbyist and it's all, and unfortunately, you know, when we talked about healthcare, like FDA and Pfizer and, and all those kinds of things tied together, well, it's the same entities that are very involved. And then the people at the top of all those are like bored. They're switching back and forth and it's the same money involved. And, and they're putting those people in, in political power. And it's a, it's a really crappy situation that we're in. It really is. And, and so. One, we, we do need to understand and, and kind of open our eyes at that and just appreciate where we are to support any kind of channel that allows for like what you're doing here, you know, to get a message out um, and, and, and don't think that you're educated because you watched a major or standardized news. They're, they're, those, those are gone now. It's all propaganda. It's all propaganda. It always has been and, and it absolutely is today. So just kind of be aware of that. Um as a filmmaker for the motivation factor, I sat in with um they had a they had a couple major Hollywood people there as kind of a spiff to to have your film at this Hollywood Film Festival. And they had Mel Gibson's, I don't remember the guy's name, but he was Mel Gibson's PR guy for The Passion of Christ. I remember that. He was in there. And um and he said his advice was Never put in any of your movies something that would be derogatory to the news primary advertising sources. So think about like Big Pharma was the example he used. He goes, you know, Big Pharma represents 70 to 80% of all the advertising money for the, for the news. He says, so don't think that the news is going to cover your film. If you are speaking derogatory to them about them, he wasn't saying, Hey, let's be nice to big pharma. He was just as speaking as a business to a business filmmaker. So business filmmakers know I can't have that bad stuff about them in my movies. Well, you just muzzled all your major journalistic guys, unless they want to try to create something like the motivation factor, put it out there and not get any major news well, who's going to pay for it? How do you get anyone to hear about it? And so you're, you're wondering, well, how come it's not, how come How come this wasn't covered everywhere? <laughs> you know, you just start going through it and you can figure it out really quickly. And, and so we have, a, we have a really difficult task ahead of us that only will be resolved if we individually experience this. And if we do, then we just kind of know. And then we share it, and we go to their school boards, and we just tell them, "No, this has to change." You go to the corporation. this has to change. We put our foot down because it has to change. Um, and, and I made the movie, just so you know, Passion Love. You know, there was not there was no, there wasn't an economic upside for me. Anybody put in the money? Ron Jones sunk twenty k into it. I sunk money into it. We we're all negative into it. We did it because we were hoping this would be a flag, a flag that that could be waved to kind of rekindle this thing and get it going again. So that's why we made this movie. It's my favorite movie. I don't think I'll ever make a movie I love more. And that, uh, I think it was more pure in its um, in its purpose. And in all involved, they really got pretty dang heartfelt. And there's a lot of people involved in that movie. So it was a great experience. So thank you for allowing me to share a little bit about it. Well, thank you for making it. So for people listening
0: where can they find the films and then, you know, where's the best central location online to learn more about you?
1: Well, my site is Doug And I do have links to much of my films there. You could also look at all my, if you look me up in IMDB database, that's the movie database. So IMDB, uh, things.com. Um, you could just look me up and you'll see anything I'm linked to. I've made, I do make other, I have made some films that aren't on my site linked to, cause I, I was just like a director or whatever. um, and then for the motivation factor, you could look on iTunes or Amazon or Google Play or Real House. Uh, that's the primary place to find that. Fasting, you could look at on um, Amazon or on Real House or at Gia Network, GIA, that plays free there. It's a subscription model kind of company. It used to be on free on Amazon Prime, but for some reason, they now charge rent. It's not a lot. It's like two bucks or something. Um I, I can't control what the platforms do with my films once they're up there. By the way, so um, <laughs> they just do what they want to do with me, your movies. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you. Oh, thank I mean, you. like
0: all I right. said, the films themselves really open my eyes. The you know the the proactive preventative element is what we need to hear. They're all articulated so well, and if you watch all three, and as you said, they all interlink. I mean, it's 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 incredible, but also just being so generous we've talked i think over two hours now um and uh yeah it's been an incredible conversation i'm going to put this out very very quickly because people need to hear it so thank you for coming on the podcast thank you thank you very
1: much